Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, we have some important business to do, but I think our most important business probably is to wish Bertie a happy 85th birthday today. So uh, thank you so much for what you do here. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the State Department is an institution, no doubt, but Bertie is more of an institution. So we, uh, we thank you very much for what you do here. I want to thank our witnesses also for being here to testify. We've got a good mix of experts and practitioners. Today we look forward to hearing your thoughts on the spread of ISIS and transnational terrorism. Tragically, last year I've seen attacks uh, that were supported or inspired by ISIS in Paris, Turkey, Beirut, Egypt, San Bernardino, and Brussels, and uh, even in my hometown of Chattanooga. Simultaneously, dozens of groups around the world have claimed some affiliation with ISIS. I hope our witnesses can comment on how many of these organizations have real ties to ISIS headquarters in Raqqa, and how many are simply attracted to the brand. I also think this hearing will be a good opportunity to explore the goals of ISIS as an organization. Are they more focused on establishing a physical caliphate, or are their goals shifting to coordinating attacks abroad, which again in the beginning was not what most people thought would be, uh, their, would be their effort. Do they have long-term goals and concrete ideology, or are they more opportunistic? I know we'll have all the, we will have all, all have questions specific to recent attacks in Europe, and I hope our witnesses can shed some light on the unique threat facing Europe and what steps we can take to encourage intelligence sharing and better border controls. Seems that our partners often depend upon American intelligence, but argue against its collection because of privacy concerns, and obviously there's a rub there. On those concerns, I'd also appreciate your views on the use of end-to-end -end encryption in some of these attacks and how much of a threat that technology poses. Finally, it appears that ISIS has created a new model of terrorism, one less structured and more violent than Al-Qaeda. I hope our witnesses can comment on what this new model means for the future. Can we expect other groups to imitate the ISIS example, and will ISIS continue to spread? And more importantly, what steps can we take to ensure that this model is unsuccessful? With that, again, I want to thank you. I think we have some outstanding witnesses today. We appreciate you being here. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Ben Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, uh, thank you for calling this hearing. First and foremost, to wish Bertie a happy birthday. I think it was well-timed for that purpose. You know, members of this committee come and go, but Bertie stays. And uh, we, we want to know his secret, because each of us have aged a great deal on this committee, more than the number of years we've been on the committee, where he seems to get younger. So, Bertie, thank you very much for your service to, to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And, Mr. Chairman, I thank you for convening this hearing. This is an opportunity for this committee to really step back and look at trends in terrorism broadly. It's my hope today that our witnesses can help us understand what lessons we have learned from our country's long history encountering terrorism and how we can apply these lessons to meet the new challenges posed by ISIL. While ISIL is the single greatest terrorist threat to our homeland security and the security of our allies worldwide, let us remember that terrorism as a global phenomenon is not new. It is a tactic tied to no specific religion, nation, or ethnicity. The goals of its perpetrators are varied. Decades ago, European Marxist groups in Germany and the Red Brigade in Italy engaged in terrorist activities against police, judges, 
and jurors. In Sri Lanka, the Tamil Tigers turned to suicide bombing and their insurgency against the government. And I vividly remember how, in order to despicably draw attention to their cause, the Palestinian terrorist group Black September murdered 11 Israeli Olympics team members in 1972. In the 21st century, Al-Qaeda and the attacks of 9-11 ushered in a new era of transnational jihad terrorism aimed at drawing the United States into a generational conflict. Just like ISIL today, Al-Qaeda directed, financed, and inspired attacks in Madrid in 2004, London 2005, and among many other bombings. But Al-Qaeda, through its scattered across the Middle East, has not broken us. We have adjusted, adapted, and are winning that fight. As we turn to meet the challenges of new threats, such as ISIL, I believe there are vulnerable lessons that can be learned. For example, I believe that by leaving in place the 2001 AMUF, Congress could be authorizing a state of perpetual war. I know, Mr. Chairman, we have tried to, to deal with how we deal with an AUMF to meet the current needs, but the 2001 left without challenge. Uh, I've introduced legislation that put a sunset on it. To me, um, uh, removes the Congress from being engaged in when we should be authorizing specific force. Moreover, I am concerned that drone strikes, and regardless of whether the next president is a Democrat or Republican, I want to see transparent, strong oversight of the drone program by Congress. I applaud this administration's recent announcement that intends to release information about casualties from drone strikes outside of war zones, but still more work needs to be done. Another lesson we have learned from our experience against al-Qaeda is that to remain resolute and clear-eyed. In recent months and weeks, tragic attacks in Brussels and Pakistan have once again thrust the issue of terrorism into the headlines, and our election year politics have only magnified the problem. But if we are once again going to defeat our enemies, in this case ISIL, we must remain as vigilant, resist complacency, but not overreact to terrorism. Factually speaking, when the number of terrorist incidents worldwide has jumped alarmingly in recent years, overall, most terrorist attacks occur primarily in just five countries, Iraq, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Syria. Fear is a powerful weapon, and we cannot let the tragic December 2015 attacks in San Bernardino scare us into walling ourselves off from the rest of the world or from each other. Today, we will hear from some of our witnesses about how ISIL is a new manifestation of the global terrorist threat. In my mind, there is no question that ISIL is a barbaric terrorist organization. It is an extremist threat to the United States, our interests, and our allies in the region. Its ambitions to create a state may be new. Its online tactics to recruit and indoctrinate may be aggressive, and its organization may be disciplined, but our resolve is unwavering and our strategy to contain, diminish, and eliminate ISIL around the globe is working, yet much more needs to be done. I strongly support President Obama's goal of degrading and destroying ISIL, a strategy that seems to be succeeding in Iraq and Syria, though there's still a long way to go. Our recent successes, including ISIL's loss of 40% of its populated territory it used to control in Iraq, the elimination of high-value ISIL operatives by coalition airstrikes, including ISIL's finance minister and minister of war, and the training of nearly 20,000 Iraqi security forces, many of which have already participated in the fight, such as the successful liberation of Ramadi. These military gains are critical, but I also urge our officials to prioritize our diplomatic power as much as our military might. For only if we work to foster politically inclusive governments in the Middle East, 
that the threat of all citizens, uh, in the Middle East, that the threat of all citizens with dignity and respect under the law, we will be able to counteract the societal conditions that assist radicalization and extremism. Mr. Chairman, you and I met with the foreign minister from Saudi Arabia. I was in Saudi Arabia two weeks ago. And uh, when we asked the direct question, is it, could you uh, support a leader in Syria that wasn't Sunni? The answer was yes. We wanted to be non-sectarian. They want an all-inclusive government because they have recognized an all-inclusive government in Syria brings stability to Syria, which helps the stability and, and uh, concerns in, in the entire region. So what we're looking for is diplomatically to be able to have governments in that region that represent all the communities and have the confidence of all the communities. And if we don't achieve that, there's a gap that feeds into the recruitment by extremist groups. And while ISIL has expanded across the Middle East and beyond, its core remains in Syria and Iraq, and only by resolving the political conflicts there can we hope to remove ISIL from the picture permanently. This is not less true than other places. ISIL's bar barbarity has found fertile ground. Because of what ISIL does, how it breeds and expands, it's exploiting political vacuums. It fills them with its hatred, its lies, and misdirection. It's wrapped warped view of Islam and its promises of meaning, vengeance, profit, power, and deliverance to the naive and the criminal. This is true in Syria and Iraq and Libya and Yemen and its recruitment of foreign supporters who often see themselves as in a political vacuum of exclusion, discrimination, and alienation within their own societies. We've got to do better. In Syria, we must continue to work with the international community and Syrians towards a negotiated settlement that is sustainable, inclusive, and reflective of the legitimate desires of all Syrians. In Iraq, we must encourage all leaders across ethnic and sectarian divides to commit to governing in an inclusive, representative, and non-corrupt manner. This is the only way to ensure long-term stability and to begin the critical work of reconstructing and rebuilding Iraq. Mr. Chairman, let me tell you, I applaud your willingness to step back and have this committee look at the big picture. I look forward to our witnesses' testimony and have full confidence that no matter what ISIL throws at us at home or abroad, our democracy, our values, and our humanity will prevail. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Mr. Graham Wood, the Edward R. Murrow Press Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. We thank you. Our second witness is Dr. Matthew Levitt, Director of the Stein Program at Counterterrorism and Intelligence at Washington Institute. And our third witness today is the Honorable Matthew Olson, former Director of National Counterterrorism Center. I think all of you understand we, we uh, will enter your written testimony into the record without objection. If you'd summarize in about five minutes, uh, we'd look forward to questions. And with that, why don't you start in the order that I introduced you. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the Islamic State's inspired immense fear among Americans and in our allies. Our allies. Uh, my main purpose is to discuss um, the nature of the threat that it poses and to differentiate the reasonable from, and un, from the unreasonable fear. Uh, as a journalist, um, what I do is I speak to people. Uh, I read the propaganda of ISIS whenever I can, and I try to find people who, in some way or another, uh, reflect the views of the group, and uh, if, if possible, find people who have direct connections to it, um, but who have been kind of left behind, who are still in places where I can speak to them freely and speak to them um, directly. Um, they uh, have many things in common. Uh, the many beliefs uh, that I think are familiar to the committee uh, about the, the righteousness of the caliphate led by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, that he is the rightful political successor to the Prophet Muhammad, etc. Um, 
So I'll begin by talking about the, what I consider the reasonable fears about what ISIS, ISIL, represents. Um, supporters of ISIL have given me little reason to believe that their most brutal and intolerant statements are mere bravado or exaggeration for effect. It's true that they've welcomed my questions and treated me very gently in person, very, in a very friendly way in many cases. Um, and they actually seem to appreciate the comforts of the Western countries uh, and tolerant societies in which they live. Their convictions about ISIL and its righteousness, however, are real. Um, when they talk about genocide against Shia or about reinstituting slavery and other practices that are inconsistent with modern notions of human rights, um, they do so without apology uh, and at times with, with real pleasure and gusto. Um, their opinions are thoroughly premeditated and they're based in an interpretation of scripture and Islamic history as well as practical considerations about how to implement the, that, that interpretation. I think it's folly, first of all, to discount their sincerity or to interpret their beliefs as ill-considered, as foolish, uh, or to understand their fanaticism as anything but sincere and real and irreducible to other factors. Um, second, the support that I've seen in speaking to them has been broad as well as deep. The demographics of the supporters, they skew toward the young and male, um, but there's a great diversity in national origin, age, education, class, um, and they're certainly not uh, summarizable as, as the kind of underworld of, of Western European gangsters that we've seen, some of the composites that, that have been uh, portrayed in the press. Um, those types are definitely well represented, um, but I've also uh, come across doctors, engineers, um, autodidacts uh, that uh, you can, in talking to them, immediately recognize educated people who, who have gone to their, uh, to their chosen terrorist group with careful consideration. Um, there are also men who are well past peak battlefield age and uh, women of all ages in non-military roles. Um, finally, the numbers are very large, uh, tens of thousands of people versus probably hundreds in the core Al-Qaeda group that we came to know in the mid-2000s. So to speak a bit to what I think are some of the unreasonable fears or, or um, misunderstandings about the group. First, um, although they speak with, with great grandeur in their ideological claims, um, they talk about genocide and so forth, uh, and I think comparisons to Nazi ideology or, or other types of, um, of, of ideological threats that the United States and the world has faced in the past are apt. Um, they're not apt in terms of the capacities of the group. ISIS still remains something that, that, that is um, a somewhat localizable um, phenomenon. Um, on the question of whether they are prioritizing the building of a caliphate or uh, attacks on Western targets, I continue to believe that, that they care deeply about the preservation of their core territories um, and that there's, their attacks on Western targets, especially spectacular attacks of the September 11 style, is a secondary concern for them. Um, their early message uh, that supporters from the West should go to ISIS territory continues to be echoed in their propaganda today. Um, they have <clears throat> instead essentially taken the old Al-Qaeda mo model of conspiracy and have uh, attached that to the mass movement of ISIS. Um, that is, ISIS has tried to mobilize tens of thousands of people to migrate, 
but they also have a conspiratorial element that is Al-Qaeda style and that is attempting to, to have attacks on, on the West. Um, we should understand, though, that the, um, the core differentiating aspect of ISIS is the mass movement, is the fact that it's been able to mobilize a huge movement of people and tens of thousands of people. Um, that is uh, not something that they are, have thus far been able to, with, with great effect, um, uh, direct toward the West in the form of terrorist attacks. Um, those attacks will happen, but they, they won't take advantage of that core strength. Thank you. Mr. Levitt, Dr. Levitt. Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, it's an honor and a privilege to uh, appear before you today. The committee's held numerous hearings on the so-called Islamic State and the devastating impact of its barbarism in the Middle East, but coming on the heels of the Brussels bombings and the group's demonstrated intent and capability to carry out terrorist attacks in the West, I'd like to address the spread of its transnational terrorism today. Allow me to paint a picture. The office of the mayor of uh, Molenbeek, the, the municipality in Brussels, sits uh, alongside a picturesque, typically European cobblestone courtyard. Across the square, within plain view of the municipal government building, sits the home of Salah Abdeslam, the Islamic State terrorist who was finally captured March 18th after evading authorities uh, since the November Paris attacks. Nothing but air separates the two buildings, but they are a world apart. This is the bifurcated Brussels that I saw coincidentally when I was in Belgium a few days before the terrorist attacks that killed 31 and wounded hundreds. And while uh, your average citizen in Europe and in the United States uh, might feel uh, a, a extra anxiety and dismay with these attacks uh, and the sense of a metastasized danger, Western counterterrorism officials are not entitled to feel that kind of surprise. Because for anybody who is paying close enough attention, the Islamic State's expanded capabilities and intent have been evident for well over a year. Uh, we now know that the Islamic State was already plotting attacks in the West as early as late 2013. But the real aha moment came not last month in Brussels, but in Verviers, in the uh, eastern part of the country in January 2015, just two weeks after the uh, Paris attacks on Charlie Hebdo in the kosher supermarket. It was in that attack where it became clear that the Islamic State had what Europol has described as an external operations uh, command and that it was, quote, quote, going global. Two things stood out from that plot that was thwarted largely thanks to uh, uh, very successful sharing of intelligence. Uh, one, that this was not uh, your inspired lone offender, which was the type of plot that we were most concerned about on the part of the Islamic State until then, but that this was a foreign-directed plot, much more carefully planned, much more uh, capability. And the second was the cross-jurisdictional nature of the threat. And simultaneously, the awareness that, as the EU counterterrorism coordinator has put it in his last report, information sharing within the EU does not reflect the threat. The fact that this threat was cross-jurisdictional, being overseen by a person on a cell phone in Athens with the uh, operators in Belgium and investigations going on in the Netherlands, in France, and in Germany, meant that sharing information across these jurisdictional lines was going to be much, much more important moving forward. The fact is that what's happening in Europe is different than what's happening in the Middle East in terms of the way people are being radicalized. And what we are seeing as some counter-radicalization officials 
within the municipality of Molenbeek put it to me, and I have to say, <clears throat> the silver lining is the, the people I met who were working on these issues there were tremendous, really fantastic. The way they put it to me is you have here people who are going from zero to hero. Uh, you have people who are looking for purpose, uh, and they are being provided that in the Islamic State. Recruiters offer a sense of family to people from broken homes, a belonging to people who feel disenfranchised from society, of empowerment to people who feel discriminated against, of higher calling and purpose to people who feel adrift. The recruiters pitch small groups of friends together. You don't really belong here. You aren't wanted here. You can't live here. You can't get a job here. And only then does the religious component come in. Clearly, you should not be living amongst the infidels. You mix in this gangster culture, and you have a combustible com uh, combination in these ghettoized neighborhoods like Molenbeek, where today's criminals are tomorrow's terrorists, and the radicalization process literally is in hyperdrive. That, in part, is because of things that have happened in the region. We need to remember that the conflict in Syria was originally a civil war, and many Europeans who first went as foreign terrorist fighters to that conflict before the Islamic State existed were going not of a sense of offensive jihad, but a defensive calling, because no one else was doing it to go defend women and children, fellow Sunnis. That most of those people ended up, if they stayed, fighting with more radical groups, Ahral Sham, Jabhat al-Nusra, because they're the ones who had the money and the weapons, means many of them did get more radicalized. But that's not why they went in the first place. The other thing that changed uh, the nature of radicalization and sped it up significantly is the founding of the Islamic State. We focus on its genocide and barbarism, obviously. But for people who are looking for this purpose, to be told, come in and get in at the ground level, to reestablish the caliphate, just like the original followers of the Prophet Muhammad, for someone who's adrift, is an empowering message. The fact of the matter is that as we move forward looking at what we need to do in Europe in particular, but in the West more broadly, this is something that's going to have to involve law enforcement agents and intelligence officers and greater intelligence sharing and moving information up to the SIS Schengen Information Sharing System borders, sure. But the more important activists are going to be the social workers and the teachers and the people in these communities. In Molenbeek, for 15 months now, they've been putting this in place to their credit. But the number of countering violent extremism police officers they have plussed up after the November attacks for a community of 100,000 people is eight. And the prevention officers who are working in that uh, capacity, in a civilian capacity, who were brilliant, three. So there's much more we need to do as we move forward. And I thank you for the opportunity to testify this morning. Thank you. Director Olson. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin. Distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to be here this morning. Uh, we meet this morning in the wake, as you mentioned, Chairman, of the horrific attacks in Brussels and more, and recently uh, in Paris and, and in San Bernardino. These massacres serve as a sobering reminder of the complexity of the terrorism challenges that we face. By all measures, uh, ISIS presents the most urgent threat to our security in the world today. The group has seized and, and is governing territory and at the same time is securing the allegiance of other terrorist groups across the Middle East and North Africa. ISIS's sanctuary uh, enables it to recruit, train, and execute external attacks as we have seen now in Europe, and it enables it to incite assailants around the world. It's recruited thousands of militants to its cause, and it uses propaganda uh, to radicalize countless others in the West. At the same time, we continue to face an enduring threat from Al-Qaeda and its affiliates who maintain the intent and capability to attack us here in the West. In my brief opening remarks, I'll focus on the the nature of the terrorist threats, and I'll touch on some of the ways I think we need to consider uh, enhancing our strategy to confront ISIS. Uh, 
Now, I'll begin with the spread of ISIS. There are really three overarching factors, and in my view, account for the rise and rapid success of ISIS. First, it has exploited the civil war in Syria and lack of security in northern Iraq. Second, it's proven to be an effective fighting force. Now, since September 2014, the U.S.-led military coalition has halted ISIS momentum, reversed some of the group's territorial gains, but ISIS has adapted uh, in the face of, these air, of the coalition airstrikes. And then third, ISIS views itself as the new leader of a global, global jihad. Um, it's developed an unprecedented ability to communicate and radicalize its followers around the world. Today, in terms of its strength, ISIS has up to 25,000 fighters in Iraq and Syria. It's also branched out, taking advantage of the chaos and unrest in places like Yemen and Libya to expand to new territory and enlist new followers. ISIS can now claim formal alliances with eight groups across an arc of instability stretching from the Middle East across North Africa. And from this position, ISIS poses a multifaceted threat to us here in the United States and as well to our allies in Europe. In the past two years, ISIS reportedly has directed or inspired more than 80 external attacks in as many as 20 nations. And then, of course, most concerning, the recent attacks in Brussels and Paris demonstrate that ISIS now has both the intent and capability to direct and execute sophisticated, coordinated attacks in Western Europe. Here at home, the threat from ISIS is on a smaller scale, but it's still persistent. We've experienced attacks that ISIS has inspired in San Bernardino and Garland, Texas. I think several factors are driving this trend toward the increasing pace and scale of terrorism violence. First, it's the sheer number of Europeans and other Westerners who've gone to Syria to join the fight there. More than 6,000 Europeans have traveled to Syria. Among the Europeans who've left to go to Syria, hundreds have returned to their home countries, typically battle-hardened, further trained, and further radicalized. Here, while the principal threat in the United States is from homegrown ISIS-inspired actors, the fact that many Americans have traveled to Syria and Iraq to fight, along with the thousands more who've gone from visa waiver countries in Europe, um, makes it clear that we need to be concerned about the possibility of a Paris or Brussels-style attack here at home in the United States. Secondly, NS, uh, secondly, ISIS has developed more advanced tactics in planning and executing these attacks. They've staged coordinated attacks. Uh, they've effectively hampered police responses. They appear to have achieved a certain level of proficiency in bomb-making and third, existing networks of extremists in Europe are, for, are providing the infrastructure to support these attacks. Looking more broadly, the rise of ISIS should be viewed as a manifestation of where we are with the global jihadist movement today. That movement has expanded and diversified after the Arab Spring. Uh, there are essentially four failed states in North Africa and the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Libya, that, have, that provide safe haven for these groups. Now, looking at the strategy to defeat ISIS, the committee's held a number of hearings and is familiar with the administration's strategy the combination of military uh, efforts, the counterterrorism uh, lines of effort. Let me focus on ways I think we need to consider augmenting that strategy. One is a surge in our intelligence capabilities. A surge would enhance our technical surveillance capabilities, develop sources to penetrate ISIS, and form closer relationship with intelligence services. This would address the gaps that exist because of the use of encryption, and it would address the gaps that exist because we've the illegal disclosures of our intelligence surveillance capabilities, which are hampering our intelligence community today. Second, I think we should look to work in concert with Europe to build Europe's ability to share information and to improve its watch listing capabilities. Today, European nations do not always alert each other when they encounter a terrorism suspect at a border. And then finally, we should redouble our efforts to counter ISIS on the ideological front, beginning with the recognition that, that uh, both in Europe and, and in the United States, we need to build and maintain the trust of, of, of Muslim communities. That also means that we need to unambiguously oppose the hateful rhetoric that erodes that trust. 
Mr. Chairman, in conclusion, we should not underestimate the capacity of ISIS and other groups to adapt and evade our defenses and to carry out acts of violence both here at home and around the world. But no terrorist group, not ISIS, is invincible. The enduring lessons of 9-11 are that we can overcome and defeat terrorism with strength, unity, and adherence to our founding values, and that American leadership is indispensable to that fight. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and turn to our ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, uh, Mr. Olson, you may have um, started to answer the question I was going to ask you, and that is you're the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center. So I was, I was curious as to whether there are lessons that we've learned, that you've learned in fighting al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups that apply to ISIL, recognizing ISIL is, is, is unique in its caliphate and what it's attempting to do. But are, your, your final comment I, I thought was striking in that if we have unity and resolve and leadership, uh, we can defeat ISIL. Were there other lessons learned in, in what we did uh, successfully in dealing with al-Qaeda or other terrorist organizations that we can now use for ISIL? I think there certainly are lessons, and, and you know, at a very strategic level, obviously unity and, and leadership and, uh, and resolve are, are crucial, but more tactically, um, look, we learned a lot over the last 15 years since 9-11. One is the, the hardest lesson perhaps to actually achieve is to deny these groups safe haven. That is one of the keys. We learned that in Afghanistan, and, and, and we've learned it in terms of our efforts uh, to mount sustained pressure on al-Qaeda wherever it exists. We see that now, what's happened with ISIS in, uh, in Iraq and Syria. Wherever these groups gain a foothold, where they have the opportunity, uh, a sanctuary to plot and train, inevitably they turn to carry out external attacks. So limiting and eventually destroying a safe haven is crucial. Another point to make is the importance of information sharing, and this goes directly to the, the, the lessons that we learned since 9-11 and what we need now to work with our European partners to instill. That is the importance of sharing information across the intelligence and law enforcement divide. We certainly learned that after 9-11, breaking down barriers to that type of sharing, and then also vertically from in the United States from the federal to the state level, and you see that as well in Europe, to, to in, instill an incentive, uh, really in the imperative to share information at all levels. Um, I think those are some of the enduring lessons from 9-11. That's very helpful. Uh let me, uh, if I'm, you mentioned that there are six other countries in which ISIL has um, strength. Our staff, I think, has identified 20 countries where there are groups that show support for ISIL. You indicate that we cannot have any safe havens. Other than Iraq and Syria, what country would you next put as our greatest area of concern that a safe haven uh, could be uh, developing? I think the, you'd find that there's a consensus here among us that Libya is the next most concerning uh, nation. In, in Libya, ISIS has as many as 6,500 fighters. They control the coastal town of Sirte and about 150 miles of coastline. They've demonstrated a capability to carry out attacks uh, as far as in western Libya. They carried out one of the most deadly suicide bombings in western Libya, killing 60 people at a police station. So. And then you consider sort of the geographic location of Libya to Europe. So I think if I picked out the next most concerning country, it would clearly be Libya. And of course, the formula there is similar to what we see in Syria. We have conflicting um, political entities leaving a vacuum that ISIL can, can, can um, certainly uh, go into. So um, thank you for that. Dr. Levin, I, I wanted to say something at least optimistic here for a moment, if I might, because I agree with your analysis on the causes for radicalization. And, 
there was an article in the Washington Post today by Joe B. Warwick that says that recent polling show that we've increased from 60 to 80 percent of the young Arabs who disavow the extremist uh, tactics being used and disavow the organization totally, even if it didn't use terrorist tactics, saying the survey suggests that religious fervor plays a secondary role at best when young Arabs do decide to sign up with the Islamic State. Joblessness or poor economic prospects appear to be the top reason. Uh, it sort of reinforces the point that, that you made uh, that we really need uh, to deal with some of these underlining problems. Uh, how do you deal with that? How, how do you, uh, you know, clearly, you know, the, uh, poverty is, exists, exists throughout the region. So uh, the economic issues are always going to be there. What strategies can work in Iraq and Syria to, to really deal with the radicalization of the population? Thank you very much for the question. Ultimately, what we're talking about is good governance. Most studies actually show that poverty is not what's driving terrorism, but poverty plays an important role in the mix of things altogether. And what we're talking about is good governance, not necessarily at the federal level, but at the local level. People need to be able to go about their daily lives and achieve what they need to achieve as basic human beings. And when they can't, it creates a cognitive opening for sometimes dangerous ideas, not always dangerous, but for ideas that will help them understand what's happening to them. And sometimes these very radical ideas are the ones that have the greatest resonance, especially when things are really tough. If I may, I'd like to add one comment on the Libya question, and that is that when I was just in Europe, and I'm going back several more times over the next few weeks, uh, the Europeans stressed to me that uh, they're very concerned about Libya, in part also because of the foreign terrorist fighter issue. They are beginning to make it more difficult for people to travel to Iraq and Syria. People are still going. But as they make it more complicated, they're seeing people, Europeans, travel to Libya, and that is a concern. And let's be clear, it's not Islamic State in Libya. There are at least three distinct Islamic states, Islamic State provinces, and they're not exactly the same in Libya. And on the issue of what we can learn, I have to say that... Um, you know, we have often for years now talked about whole of government, uh, but only recently, and I give credit to the administration, have we created a task force at DHS with a deputy from DOJ, an interagency uh, buy-in, something that uh, uh, Matt was working on a lot when he was there, uh, and he can speak to this in spades about the importance of getting greater buy-in from other parts of the interagency. Now we have a task force that was created top-down by the president, and we really need to get in not only the FBI and NCTC side of government, but the HHS and education and other parts of government as well. Let me, let me get one more question into you, Dr. Levitt. You said one of the reasons why recruitment was effective is that young uh, uh, believers want to get in the, be the beginning state of a new state, the caliphate. Uh, so how important is it, the territorial uh, uh, dimensions of ISIL in its recruitment? I think the territorial piece for ISIL recruitment is huge, and I think nothing has had a bigger impact on setting them back, including setting back their um, recruitment campaigns than battlefield defeat. They cannot claim to be establishing this idyllic caliphate that they've tried to create um, online. They can't say that they are remaining and expanding, which is their own words, their own litmus test metrics for success. Um, and if there is not an idyllic caliphate to get in and build from the ground level up, and if that caliphate is exposed for not really being much of a caliphate, certainly not, not being like what was created with the Prophet Muhammad and his original followers, then this uh, line of reasoning doesn't uh, resonate as much as it might otherwise. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, in January 2016, through excellent uh, police work, the FBI foiled a plot in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a plot against the, the Masonic Temple. Uh, the would-be terrorist's name was Sami Muhammad Hamza, and in the complaint, uh, there's an informant that uh, quoted him a number, number of times. I just want to read you excerpts from that uh, complaint. This is Sami Muhammad Hamza. I quote, I am telling you, if this hit is executed, it will be known all over the world. The people will be scared and the operations will increase. This way we will be igniting it. I mean, we are marching at the front of the war and we will eliminate everyone. Mr. Wood, you, you kind of, I think, uh, certainly encapsulated in your article what ISIS really wants. The significance, as uh, Dr. Lovett was talking about, of, of that territory, that caliphate. Uh, I want to ask all the panelists, as long as that caliphate exists, we understand how incredibly effective ISIS is at using social media to inspire people like Sami Muhammad Hamza. Uh, do you think ISIS can be contained if it has that caliphate, if that territory exists, I mean, are they going to stop? Is there any way you can contain them and not have them spread and incite that type of uh, activity? Mr. Wood, I'll start with you. Uh, <clears throat> I would first um, echo something that Dr. Levitt said. This slogan of remaining and expanding uh, was uh, ubiquitous in ISIS propaganda a year ago. Um, there's a reason it's no, not um, mentioned quite as much nowadays. Um, Namely, that it, 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 is, it is being uh, falsified. Uh, it is not expanding. Now, the, the ability actually to contain it and to, to suffer no attacks, to be uh, safe outside of its borders, to make sure that, that no planning takes place within the caliphate to attack us outside of it, um, that, that will never be possible. Um, there will constantly be an effort to do that. And especially as the caliphate ceases to be an, a, an expanding caliphate, um, it is so important for them to dominate the news cycle, to be able to, to uh, present themselves as the, the A-list of global jihad, that I, I would expect them to, to continue and to expand their foreign attacks. So I, I, in, in that sense, I do not think it is possible to contain the group. Now, is it possible to contain them within certain limits, though? Uh, that is, can we contain them and, and limit their ability to, to attack us outside of their territory to a tolerable amount? Now, what we consider tolerable when we consider attacks on the homeland uh, is perhaps up for debate. I think that we can, we can keep them to a, a, a level that, that we, we might have to consider manageable, which would be the level that we've had let, for the last Let me quickly interject. You know, yes. th uh, these numbers, by the way, I understand they're very imperfect, but this is from the State Department's START report, the you know, study of terrorism, response to terrorism, showing that prior to 2001, 9-11-2001, on average, there were less than 5,000 deaths due to terrorist attack. In 2012, that had grown to 15,000. In 2014, it was up to 43,000. So, you know, a tolerable level of terrorism. I, I'm not sure there is such a thing, and I, my sense is this is actually growing. Uh, Mr. Olson, you, you certainly talked about the fact that uh, they've gained strong footholds, and they have to be destroyed, correct? I mean, do, do you really think we can sit there and kind of contain a caliphate and not have this continue to spread and grow? They, they, have you seen, I think, I'd imagine you've seen the videos of them training the next generation. Every, every day that goes by, they're training more young people. They're starting to stream in using migrant flow into Europe. This is a growing threat, is it not? I, I do think it's, 
it's growing in the sense that uh, as, as the numbers have increased, particularly the, the problem as a threat to the West, the problem of foreign fighters streaming into uh, Syria and Iraq, 40,000 total foreign fighters from around the world, in a number, around over 6,000 uh, Europeans. That, you know, that's a real threat. And that, will, that was something we saw when I was in government two years ago. We are now seeing the sort of fruits of that, uh, of, of that movement with the attacks in uh, Brussels and France. As, as individuals return from having traveled to Syria, I think that, that from that perspective, uh, it is a growing problem. And I, I think I would also add uh, a point to agree with, with Graham Wood that even as we constrain and have success in limiting uh, ISIS on the battlefield in Syria and Iraq, uh, you may actually see uh, more of the types of attacks like we see in Brussels and Paris. In other words, those are very hard to stop. Uh, and ISIS, in an effort to remain relevant, to dominate the news cycle, as Mr. Wood said, may actually increase its effort to carry out those type of attacks. You talked about one of the, you know, we have to surge our in intelligence capabilities. Uh, we have not been capturing and detaining and interviewing over a long period of time. When I was down in Guantanamo Bay, I talked to those interviewers. That's how you actually gain that human intelligence, is capturing these operatives and then talking to them over a long period of time, poking holes you know, in, in their testimony, finding the discrepancies between their testimony and that of fellow operatives. Uh, how harmful is the fact that we are, really have, have reduced to almost the point of eliminating our capturing, detaining, and long-term interviewing uh, terrorist operatives? So uh, we have had some success in terms of doing exactly that, detaining and interrogating ISIS members uh, in Iraq. Uh, so there has been some... We've that, begun that again. I mean, yeah. we, we were able to foil some potentially chemical uh, attacks, correct? Exactly, Senator. So there has been some success. that It hasn't occurred certainly on the scale that we saw, for example, in Afghanistan, uh, in Bagram. Uh, it is an important part of, of any effort. Mr. Dr. Levin, would you like to comment on my questions? Um, I just, on the, on the first one, I'd say that we need to recognize there's, there's a big piece of glory in this for, for, for wannabes, and what you read from the case of Milwaukee is not unique. Um, consider the case of um, just uh, after the uh, November attacks in Paris, Belgian police intercepted a phone call to Brussels from a, a Syrian and overheard a Belgian militant inquiring about his friend Bilal Hadfi, who had been one of the suicide bombers in Paris. Militant asks what his friend's um, we're saying about Bilal back in, quote, the sector, meaning Molenbeek. The quote, he asked, are they talking about him? Are they praising him? Are they saying he was a lion? In other words, his, his main issue is the personal glory about all of this, and that's this inspiring piece of it. Um, I do think that as we have greater success, we should expect that our adversary is going to lash out where and when it can. It wants to show relevance, and it does want to get on the news. That's that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and succeed. It means we should anticipate that those things will happen. Because the Islamic State controls territory, and because there's nothing really good to go in behind the Islamic State, maybe not in Iraq, certainly not in Syria, it's not just so easy as how quickly can we defeat them. It's how quickly can we defeat them and have something else that will take that space and not do the same all over again. And that makes us much more difficult. Listen, I understand the challenge, but the bottom line is as long as that caliphate exists, as long as they control territory, this, from my standpoint, the risk is going to continue to grow. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all for 
your testimony. I was catching it in the midst of meetings uh, in my office. I, I uh, listened to your testimony here, and I've had the privilege before of uh, in your official role, Mr. Olson and Dr. Levin, and, and gracious enough to come by my office to talk about this subject. I, uh, I get the sense that we are in this for a very long time. Is that a, a pessimistic view, or is it a realistic view? I, I certainly think it's a realistic view. Uh, we, what that, how long that is, is it's hard to, to, to gauge, but it, it certainly is uh, a matter of years, I, I would say, at this point. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that, Dr. Levin? I agree with it by default. Uh, as we just discussed, you know, this is a clear and immediate threat, but there also is the problem of not knowing what's going to come in behind it in the near term. I can't tell you, though, as I go around and I talk to counterterrorism officials and officials in the military, they are frustrated because there's not a whole lot of direction. I get asked all the time by people in government now, with someone out of government, what is our strategy and what is our goal? Tell me and I'll get us there. If they don't know what it is, that means it's not being communicated well enough from the top. And we need to do that. I think, therefore, we are in this for the long haul by default. There has to be a way to have a real strategy to defeat the Islamic State and plan for what can come in behind it without this necessarily being multi-generational. Mm -hmm. So if uh, your testimony, uh, Mr. Olson, was that this is a real threat to the United States, one that... Uh, I don't want to say that the president downplayed it in his most recent interview, but he characterized it a, a, a little different than the sense I get of the Islamic State. Uh, and I understand wanting to continue on with our lives so that terrorists don't ultimately win, but I, I, I listen to it and I get concerned about uh, the ability of the Islamic State to have command and control centers that at the end of the day allow them to go far beyond uh, all the different places in which they are presently located. So if those, as you say, Dr. Levitt, that uh, are in charge of defending the United States feel that there is no specific strategy uh, to achieve the goal, what are some of the immediate things that we need to do, uh, certainly to uh, not allow the Islamic State to have the capacity for command and control to direct attacks against the United States, one, and our allies. And two, there's obviously a longer-term uh, effort here, because if Mr. Wood's uh, statements about the depth uh, of uh, ISIL's uh, support is the reality, uh, we have a challenge to deal with that is uh, on a longer scale to defeat the ideology and to uh, work on it through all the mediums that we have. What are some of the things we should be doing immediately as a strategy to at least disrupt their command and control elements? And secondly, what, we, what must we commit ourselves to in order to uh, working against their ideology? And that has a series of elements, I would assume, uh, in addition to raising the standard of people's lives uh, in these countries who obviously feel that they have no real hope for the future and that they are desperate economically and then they turn to uh, a place where they in fact uh, have their challenges converted into the belief that dying is more glorifying than living and that there is a better life beyond by virtue of martyrdom. So. 
can you deal with what we should be doing uh, in the short term that we are not to disrupt command and control and their ability to have attacks against the United States and our allies? And what is the longer range challenge that we have here? I'd invite anyone to, to answer that. I'll jump in on that. I do, because it's a, obviously a very large and, and you know, well-framed question, because what you've put out, Senator, is you know, there are things that we can do immediately and in the short term that we are doing on a tactical level to disrupt their command and control. One is maintaining the military pressure, accelerating that effort in Syria and Iraq to uh, put pressure on their ability to plan and plot with impunity in a sanctuary they've created. Um, that includes use of special forces to go after their leaders and, and high-value operatives. Um, we also, as I mentioned, uh, need to increase our intelligence capabilities. We've lost a lot of our intelligence capabilities because we essentially, uh, the game plan was given away to how we collect intelligence. Uh, and that needs to be rebuilt. So we need to Im improve our intelligence. And, and then we need to, again, in the shorter term, work with our European partners to improve their ability to share the information, often information that we collect and then share with, with, with Europe. That needs to get shared more effectively within Europe. That's the shorter term. Longer term, in answer to your question, uh, th there is the issue of the, of the ideology. And that's, a, and that's where this becomes not just a, a short-term problem, but a very long-term problem, as we go after addressing and countering the ideology that fuels the violence. Um, that's a difficult, uh, effort. It's hard to measure success, but it's one that we, I think we need to step up our efforts in order to match the nature of the threat. And then finally, the, the point I would make, and, and you touched on this, we need to address the underlying and root causes of extremism and terrorism, uh, whether it's uh, civil unrest, um, uh, lack of border controls, uh, lack of socioeconomic opportunity uh, in, in large parts of uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Dr. Levin. Thank you for the question. You hit the nail on the head on the biggest problem we're facing right now. In the immediate, the first thing that had to happen and did happen was a change in the rules of engagement. And so we've seen the ability to now target oil. Uh, we've seen the ability to target um, where they're storing their cash, uh, uh, the oil tanker trucks. We're seeing a significant change since December in the battlefield approach. We're also seeing clearly the need to not only improve our ability to collect as you heard, but also not only our ability to share, but the ability of our partners to receive and share. And the Europeans have a real problem here. I'll just give you one example. Uh, Europol's focal point traveler database has recorded only 2,786 verified foreign terrorist fighters, despite the fact that we know that it's well upwards of 5,000, probably closer to 6,000 EU citizens or residents of the EU who traveled to Syria and Iraq and more recently Libya to fight. But what's worse is that of those 2,786 verified cases, over 90% of those reports come from only five EU countries, right? It used to be the point when I was the desk for Intel at Treasury that we would be asking the Europeans to partner with us more in the terror finance tracking program. If you look at the European Union counterterrorism coordinator's latest report, it's not us, it's him. He is calling on European member states to remove certain cutouts. For example, if you make a Euro-denominated Euro payment from one person within the EU to someone else within the EU, that's not covered within the program. America is not asking for that change. The EU counterterrorism coordinator is asking for that change. There's lots of things that have to change there. But in the long term, absolutely right. Uh, the military fight is difficult. 
because they control territory. The ideology is something we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. And I think it's two distinct things here. One is in the region. You have a lost generation in the extreme. Young children today, hostage within areas under Islamic State control, are brought up to be completely desensitized to violence. People in, in, in camps elsewhere in the Middle East don't have a regular roof over their heads, don't have regular access to education. That's going to be a generational challenge. And then more generally, given social media and the ability to share ideas very widely, we've seen how these dangerous ideas can cross borders that don't exist on the internet and their ability to resonate with people who are facing completely different issues in, say, Molenbeek in Brussels or elsewhere. And the fact that those ideas from the Middle East are resonating with people from Molenbeek, who are third or fourth generation uh, Belgian citizens. One of them said to me, we feel more Belgian than most Belgians, because most Belgians who've been here for hundreds of years, they feel Walloon or Flemish. We just know Belgian. That this is what's resonating with them is a real issue we'll be dealing with for a long time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I want to, my first interjection, I, I uh, hear sometimes from the foreign policy establishment, if you will, that uh, the only thing we need to do here is develop a strategy like we did with the Soviet Union during the nuclear um, standoff that we had, a strategy that will go from president to president, from Congress to Congress to deal with this. And you know, listen to the issues, we see the issues when we travel to the Middle East. Um, I look at the challenges we're dealing with right now in the Middle East and compare them to the bipolar effort we had uh, over the nuclear issue with the Soviet Union for so long. And I look at the, that issue, the issue of the Soviet Union, as almost being Ned and the first reader. I mean, very simple relative to the issues that we have here. And I sometimes become upset when I hear people say, well, you guys just need to develop a policy that's like we did when we were in charge uh, to deal with the Soviet Union that can go from, from generation to generation, from decade to decade. If you were going to outline that, when you're talking about issues of, for instance, uh, someone might say we need to go after the safe haven, but we've got to wait until someone's there to come behind it, or we have the poverty issues. Uh, you know, Egypt has 90 million people, two and a half million new people each year being born. 700,000 new jobs needed to be created each year just to take care of that. They have terrorism, downward uh, tourism, the 24,000 classrooms, have a healthcare system that doesn't work. Each of the countries has similar problems, some, some worse. Some, sometimes we have a leader that we can deal with, sometimes we have a terrible leader that we cannot deal with. So if I were going to ask you to step back and lay out the components of a strategy to deal with ISIS that could go from administration to administration and from Congress to Congress, what would the elements of that be? If I could begin, Chairman, by agreeing with your observation about the complexity of the current challenge compared to perhaps the Cold War. And, and while I do think the, the, the current challenge is more complex, obviously, I, I think it's important to point out it's we don't face the sort of existential threat that we did uh, during the Cold War. And I think those are two ways to think about it. Well, in, in some ways, it makes it more difficult. That's right. Because uh, the American people today, while they're fearful, do not feel an existential threat. And there are tremendous investments that we need to make here. But when you look at the Middle East issue, all the things that you guys have alluded to, 
you're talking about investments, are you not? I mean, you're talking about poverty, you're talking about lots of things. So if again, uh, yeah. I'm sorry to interject again, but go ahead and lay out uh, the strategy that's gonna carry us decade to decade. Well, very broadly, I would think, I would think of it in three, uh, three ways. One is the denial of safe haven uh, to ISIS and other groups. Uh, and that means uh, a military commitment in a, uh, with the Iraqis and in Syria. Uh, it means uh, working with uh, governments, a coalition partners to build uh, an ability to hold territory on the ground. So one big bucket of, of effort has to be denying safe haven, and that is, a, at least with respect to ISIS, a significant military effort. The second bucket, I think, is, de is, is uh, defeating the infrastructure, going after the terrorist infrastructure. That means the movement of people, money, arms, uh, and ideas. So, so going after ISIS, uh, its infrastructure, which includes all of those things, people, money, uh, weapons, and ideas, its ability to carry out its propaganda campaign. Um, and then third, the third large category is hardening our own defenses. Uh, that's uh, intelligence sharing, it's homeland security, it's, it's working with uh, our allies to build up our ability to, uh, to disrupt attacks, to stop the movement of people, uh, to, to prosecute individuals who commit crimes by seeking to provide material support to terrorism, for example. So very broadly speaking, those three categories. And then I think the only thing I left out was in that third category, I would add in the countering violent extremism effort that, that Dr. Levitt talked about as well. So you, you, none of that addressed the underlying issues that are driving right. uh, the whole desire of young people to be a part of this, right? right. I mean, you're, you're admitting that. Uh, yeah, you know, I didn't even, you're right, absolutely fair point, Chairman. I, I, you know, in some ways that is, a, that is a, such a broad effort. It is, it is an essential part of the effort, so I would, I would have to, yeah, I should have I mentioned that, but it's just, that is a, obviously a very difficult and broad effort to, to address mentioned earlier, the underlying and root causes of terrorism, whether that's, those are political, socioeconomic, educational. Do you want to add to that, or do you, we can move to the next question? If I may, just in brief, because almost all my points just checked off, uh, Matt just checked them off, but I would add, add local governance, local governance. Whether it's in Iraq or it's in Brussels, if we can work with allies, target our dollars, create conditions where local governance is put in place, it goes the longest way for people being able to live their lives. And the second thing is, the one thing none of us have mentioned today, and mea culpa, I haven't either, is Syria. We're not just dealing with the Islamic State. We're dealing with Syria. And I happen to believe Assad is at least as big a problem as Islamic State is. According to the UN, there's a nine to one ratio of the number of people the Islamic State has killed compared to, uh, the, the, the Assad regime is killed compared to the Islamic State. And the Islamic State is only here today because of the vacuum that was created by Assad. And I think that we bear some responsibility for that. We were not proactive enough. We didn't do what we could have, when we could have, and Syria got much, much worse. There are mistakes of omission that were created. And I would say looking forward across administrations, we need to be careful not only to be wary of what we do, but of what we don't do. Graham, you want to add to that? or? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I would echo both, both comments already, and I would add one more thing, which is a, a, a key portion of ISIS's strategy right now is regional instability. Uh, in the, that is, in the Middle East, uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, like Egypt, particularly in the Sinai, and we need to keep a very close eye on these, these aspects. Specifically, ISIS has, has taken the tactic 
of um, having a, a series of terrorist attacks in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, and has attempted to demonstrate that, that the ability to, to uh, maintain stability, uh, to stave off chaos, that uh, is really the main value proposition of these governments for, for their people, um, is, is no longer something that they can promise. Um, these are local dynamics that, that need to be uh, addressed as, as a, a key portion of, of an anti-ISIL strategy. Well, if I could, to summarize, you know, denial of safe haven, we're talking about a whole different kind of effort than has been taking place. I mean, I think people acknowledge that, not plus or minus. I'm just saying you're talking about a whole different kind of effort. The infrastructure piece, I do think that you know, there are some efforts underway to deal with, you know, the nine different efforts, if you will, that, that are necessary there. Hardening defenses, obviously, uh, no-brainer. But the fact is, when you start dealing with the local issues, I mean, now you're starting to deal with the core of the problem. And I just want to say again, you're talking about a massive, long-term problem. You said years. Uh, I think years is a tremendous understatement, and I think that the resources, the efforts, dealing with rulers that, you know, candidly, sometimes are good, sometimes are bad, it changes overnight sometimes, um, just a, it's a pretty daunting task that we have to figure out a way to deal with, but again, to try to cause something to occur between a Democratic administration, a Republican administration, different controls in Congress, uh, you're talking about something that, uh, uh, deserves our effort, don't get me wrong, but is very daunting, especially with players changing as rapidly as they do. With that, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Wood, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming to Colorado for the uh, counter -education, Counterterrorism Education uh, Learning Laboratory event uh, a couple months ago, so really appreciate your presence there. Thank you. Uh, to the other witnesses as well, thank you all for your participation today. I uh, wanted to follow up on the conversation you had a little bit with Libya uh, a couple of uh, minutes ago. And to Senator Cardin, I may ask him if he is, uh, if I'm accurately phrasing this question. Several on the committee had an opportunity to visit with leadership in Saudi Arabia. When the question of Libya was asked, I believe the response from one of the key leaders, top leaders in Saudi Arabia was that they believe Libya will make Syria look like, and I quote, a piece of cake. Uh, and I just was wondering if you would agree with that assessment or not. And if you agree, are we adequately focusing our resources, attention, and planning on Libya? That, that's a that's a obviously quite pessimistic uh, perspective. Uh, it, I, you know, there, there's a a uh, a effort underway to reconstitute the political leadership in Libya. That you know, to our conversation just a few minutes ago with the chairman is critical to addressing the longer-term problem in Libya, the governance issues, the lack of security. Uh, so I, I, my, my sense is, you know, the, the last few years have been, uh, you know, extremely difficult in Libya. And the rise of extremist groups, and in particular ISIS, does pose a, a significant threat, uh, I think second only to the threat that ISIS poses from its safe haven in Syria and Iraq. I think what we're going to need to do is be able to uh, look toward but in the near term, uh, targeted efforts in Libya to go after ISIS leaders, uh, particularly when we have intelligence about threats emanating from its stronghold in CERT, but also over the longer term, working with whatever sort of political 
uh, regime emerges from the process there. Senator Levitt. Yeah, I just concur and say I think the main difference, and it may be optimistic to put it this way, is that um, there are people who are um, positive about the prospects of there being something else to come in behind what was in Libya as a central government. And if there can be some type of central government, that it then could be the backbone with international support to take on the three distinct Islamic State elements around the country. I'm not a Libya expert. I can't tell you whether or not that's accurate or not, but that makes it very, very different than Syria, where there's no prospect uh, for that at all. Mr. Wood. Uh, one thing I would add is um, in some of my reporting in Nigeria, um, Libya has been mentioned, um, it's been mentioned frequently actually as a kind of hub of, of control, hub, an ideological hub, a place where um, fighters for Boko Haram could go for a kind of ideological training or indoctrination. So I, I think one of the important elements that we need to understand about the, the danger of the developing situation there is the connection of Libya to the so-called West African province of ISIS and the, the larger problem of the Maghreb, which, which um, the connections um, are still um, poorly tracked. Thank you. And uh, just turning to the Western Hemisphere now, in the 2016 Worldwide Threat Assessment, the Director of National Intelligence uh, stated that more than 36,500 foreign fighters, we know these numbers, including at least 6,600 6, from Western countries have traveled to Syria from more than 100 countries since the conflict began. Uh, Director Comey at the FBI has said a total of over 250 Americans had traveled or attempted to travel to Syria as of September 2015, 150 being successful. Uh, we've learned also through private sources that an additional 76 fighters traveled from South America. And according to reports that we've all seen on March 9th, a man who identified himself as an ISIS follower murdered a well-known Jewish merchant in Uruguay. Do you see, any of you see ISIS or other Islam, uh, Islamic terrorist networks growing in presence in our own hemisphere? Mr. Wood? Um, up till now, um, the, the ISIS supporters who I have, uh, 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 whose individual cases I have looked at, have been uh, clearly directing their efforts toward getting to Syria or have already got there. Um, that certainly does not mean that there are not cells in the United States, that there is not development of, of, of uh, plans. I would be shocked if that is not happening. But um, the specific traces of it are not things that have been on my radar. And, and I guess I, I recognize that, and we've all talked about the United States and the possibilities of targeting the United States and the cells and the radicalization, but what about uh, South America? What about Central America, Mexico? What are we seeing or, or you see? Uh, again, I, I've, I've seen... Um, individual cases of Peruvians, of Chileans, who have made it to ISIS territory. And it, it, they, 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 they are uh, fascinating examples of a kind of uh, current case of, of globalization of a Peruvian who decides that Syria is, the, is his destiny. Um, but uh, the actual development of attacks and cells, I have not observed. Okay. Dr. Levitt. It's been actually impressive how small the numbers have been so far from South America, South and Central America. Uh, I'm told there are a couple of places where, I don't know if you'd call them, call them hot spots yet because it's still small numbers, but more than onesies and twosies. But my understanding is that people are watching this very, very closely, and not just local authorities, but obviously American authorities too, for all the obvious reasons. So I, I don't want to make it sound like we're not interested, we're not concerned, but it is telling that the numbers have been as small as they have been. And I have heard of no kind of, uh, networks or cells as such that we could describe um, that we know about. 
course, you can't, you don't know what you don't know, but uh, the numbers have been very small. Mr. Olson, I want to follow up with you with something that you said earlier, and I think uh, in November I had the opportunity to travel to, to, to Mexico to visit with the foreign minister in Mexico City and to visit with some of their defense experts, and we talked a lot about this very question and what was happening in, in Mexico, in their neighbors to the south, and uh, the danger that they recognize somebody coming from either either back to uh, to Mexico, Central America, who, who traveled to Syria and then came back, and or perhaps somebody who's trying to get in through uh, Mexico and our southern border. Um, they understand the concern and they understand the need and the need to cooperate with the United States and, and the Western Hemisphere. You talked about how uh, ISIS has created this sort of. Uh, you know, external operations command, you talked about, or sorry, I guess, I'm sorry, this is Dr. Levitt, not you, I'm sorry, Mr. Olson, but Dr. Levitt, you said this, that information sharing within the European Union does not reflect their threat. I believe that was you who said that. Uh, do we have the kind of information and communication network that we need in the Western Hemisphere uh, to deal with a possibility of a threat in the future? Well, Matt's much more capable to speak to this than I am because he helped build it, but I don't mind uh, tooting his horn. Um, we have, nothing's perfect, but we have since 9-11 done what the Europeans haven't done with joint terrorist task forces and fusion centers and very close and intimate outreach uh, to our neighbors and people who don't just border on our countries uh, to build the kind of network that shares information up and down pipelines and avoids stove piping. You will never have complete elimination of stove piping, but this is something that we have invested a tremendous amount of time and effort and money, frankly, into building. And you do have much, much different sharing between local, state, even things like tribal and federal authorities in this country and our outreach with DHS and other officers abroad um, than our, most of our partners do. Um, I have some very good friends who head our DHS offices and places abroad, and one of the things they do is try and build that relationship not only for our benefit, but help build similar type of uh, uh, connect, uh, connective tissue uh, within our allies' countries. That's to their benefit and, and by extension to ours. Thank you. And uh, Mr. Olson or Mr. Wood, if you'd like to add to that, otherwise I've run out of time. I would just very much agree with Dr. Lev in terms of the, the, the efforts in the United States uh, in terms of uh, both changing laws, changing policies, and the level of resources put into uh, the overall enterprise of sharing intelligence, sharing law enforcement information, both you know, horizontally among federal agencies, but also vertically between federal, state, and local agencies. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, thanks. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all very much for being here. Um, I want to follow up on the information sharing, but before I do, I want to just pick up on the line of discussion that Senator Corker raised, because it struck me, um, Mr. Olson, as you were talking about what's in a strategy to fight ISIS, that there were military components of virtually everything you suggested. And yet, as we've talked about, how do we get to the core of this problem, its governance, its economic and social concerns. And we've been much more successful in America when we've um, been dealing with the military aspects than we have been with nation building. And so it seems to me this is going to continue to be an impediment as we think about how to deal with this um, to actually get at the root causes. And also, it's going to be harder to get public support to deal with the economic, social, governance concerns, the nation-building aspects of what we need to do than it is to get support for the military concerns. So it kind of puts us in a catch-22 situation in terms of how to get at the, 
the fundamental issues that you're raising about ISIS. And I don't know that I need anybody to, to respond to that unless someone would like to and you think there's a hole in my reasoning there. If I could just say, as a, almost as a point of clarification, first of all, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Senator. And in, in my response, I think back to Ch Chairman uh, Corker's point, I, I had in mind sort of the strategy with regard to ISIS in terms of my focus on the military effort to deny safe haven. But when you look at other countries, obviously the denial of safe haven to terrorist groups, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, um, or affiliated groups, that really is a political, uh, social, um, diplomatic effort. So you, you can look at countries across North Africa from uh, the West in, in Nigeria through Libya, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, uh, into the Middle East, uh, places like Yemen. Uh, each of these places we have to engage to build up the capacity of those countries to uh, support political transitions that uh, are appropriate for their countries, that would create allies for us. That is a much harder, as you pointed out in your question, and longer-term effort, but one that's uh, certainly at least as indispensable as any military effort, which is, just happens to be where we find ourselves with respect to ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So let me follow up on the question about information sharing, because one of the points you made, Mr. Olson, and I think both of the other um, others of you have made it as well, is that um, one of the challenges in Europe is the information sharing and getting up to speed today in Europe uh, to where we were back after September 11th. So what are the impediments to doing that and what more should we be doing in the United States to support the European efforts? And for whoever would like to answer that. Thank you for both your questions. If I could just quickly tag on to the first one. I, I, I don't think we should be doing the nation building thing. We don't do it well, you're absolutely right. right. But we need to send, spend a lot more time and effort with our diplomacy to convince governments, allies, that it's not just as a favor to us, but it's in their interest to put in place good governance. That's very, very hard for some countries where me remaining in power as an individual is more important than anything else, but that has to be a huge priority in a way that it's not yet. Um, with our European allies, there are several legitimate issues. They have a different sense of privacy than we do. I don't minimize it, make light of it at all, but it all comes down to balance. People have a right to privacy. People have a right to get on the metro going to work in downtown Brussels and not be blown up. And staging at each metro stop soldiers in camo with automatic weapons across their chest, as they did, I was at that metro stop six times the week beforehand, isn't gonna stop someone from getting on uh, with, a, with a suicide bomb. Um, the other thing is they have concerns from World War II and elsewhere of, of a history of overstep of intelligence. So again, what kind of assurances do you have to, and checks and balances do you need to put in place to make people feel comfortable? And finally, the European Union is more European than a union in many ways. It is primarily an economic union, and in that it has been very successful. But the very things that make it a successful economic union create vulnerabilities from a security standpoint. And there is not as much of an interest because of privacy issues and tensions between some governance and because of business issues, legitimate economic issues, to put things in place. And so I think there, this will be, I believe, a wake-up call, at least for some. The fact that Turkey had informed um, 
not just the Netherlands, but Belgium as well, of one of the people who was later an attacker, and this information wasn't shared. The fact that there is the SS system at the borders, but it turns out that a whole host of EU countries aren't connected to it or don't input any information into it. I think we're going to see some change there. Okay, and you've um, described the problem very well. It's still not clear to me exactly what we need to do, but I, I want to go on to another question because one of the things that we are currently doing in um, the State Department is setting up a new global engagement center to counter violent extremism. And uh, I was in Brussels for the Brussels Forum and heard a variety of experts talking about um, countering violent extremism and what we need to do to address ISIL. And they were, I think, un pretty united in suggesting that, that that was a wasted effort, that what we need to do is not something that we can do through um, our State Department or really through um, effectively in terms of social media and how we, how we deal with that aspect of um, countering violent extremism through a bureaucratic agency. And I wanted to get um, the thoughts of each of you on that issue. Dr. Levitt, you obviously have a responding to that because you reacted there. I just realized that my button was still on, but I, I, I do want to answer, and I thank you for the question. At the Washington Institute, we're doing a very large study on all things CVE right now, and this, this is one of them. Um, there are a lot of jokes that have been made about the Global Engagement Center, including its name. Others in the State Department say, isn't that what all of us do? But the fact is that I do think uh, there's good reason to have moved from where they were at the CSCC to this new idea. The, the idea, whether it will work or not, I think it's, it's premature to say. And they're being quite quiet, I think, till they get some wins under their belt, and that's maybe not a bad idea. But the whole idea, if it will work, is for government to figure out how it can partner in this space with others. We are not the best, we're not a good voice on this at all. Right. Who can we partner with? In what ways can we support them? It's not an American, it's not an American government response, but with others in the region, Arab voices, Muslim voices, on issues that we as government shouldn't be commenting on, certainly aren't very good, religious uh, narratives, for example, and not just counter-narratives, which is countering a narrative that they're providing, but providing our own narratives. So who can we partner with? Who are the others? And I think that's the main thing we're, they're going to have to be judged on. What partners do they partner with? How successful are they? What kind of metrics do they have in place? I don't think they have the answers to that yet, because this is also new, mm -hmm. but to their credit, these are the things they're talking about. And can I ask if either one of, um, either Mr. Wood or Mr. Olson would like to respond to that as well? I would agree that, that a large portion of the CVE effort has been wasted. Um, and it, it is very, very easy to see why that might be the case. Any conversation with someone who is at all ISIL inclined uh, will demonstrate the speed with which that they have, have been uh, taught to uh, destroy the credibility of, of, of anyone who is associated with not just the United States, but any number of other enemies of the group, including, um, including uh, clerical enemies of the group, including other governments. Um, they, uh, as a part of their indoctrination, um, they are taught how to, how to find out the, um, the ways to, to exploit weaknesses, to observe them, and to, to, to convince others of the same. So what I think we need to understand from that is, first of all, that there is this kiss of death problem. Anything that we touch does uh, have a tendency to, to, um, to, to be discredited by, the, by our very presence in, in the room. Um, 
but we, that is not entirely something that, that uh, um, means that CVE efforts in general um, uh, should be pushed aside. The efforts of uh, non-affiliated, non-US government affiliated, um, non-clergy affiliated people to ridicule ISIS, to, to um, change its perception as a, a glorious movement to join, to a ridiculous one, uh, or to to one that, that is a, essentially throwing one's life away rather than than, than achieving glory. That that kind of effort uh, is is being done without our help, um, and we need to make sure that the, if we try to help it, that we don't destroy it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. My time Senator is up. Flight. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, apologize if I'm plowing old ground here. Um, let me talk about Somalia for a minute. Uh, Wall Street Journal had a piece a, a while ago talking about uh, terror financing and the rules that uh, that we have, which have caused a lot of banks to uh, to just simply pull out of certain markets and uh, not uh, engage in in, uh, in money transfers. Uh, the Somali diaspora sends back about 1.3 billion dollars. It's uh, between 25 and 45 percent of the entire economy there. In what ways is 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 that been a net plus this concern about terror financing, or is it simply driven uh, terror financing underground um, in ways that uh, are harder to track and, and more difficult to combat? Uh, Mr. Wood, do you want to address that at all? I, I can't speak to the, the success of any particular efforts, certainly not in, in the case of Somalia. I, I will say that with, with ISIL, one of the one of the great developments of, of ISIL is a kind of self-financing model that they've had. That is, the uh, ability to to ensure revenue through taxation and theft, confiscation within its own territory. So the the efforts to to dry up financing certainly should be pursued, but they're they're not going to get us to the finish line. Any other thoughts? Yes, but Samaya, I'll leave the Islamic State issue aside. I, I would just argue there that. It's a different toolkit, right? We actually have had great success, especially recently with the rule, changed rules of engagement on Islamic State. We can have more success. It's just going to be a different toolkit than we saw with the yesterday's Al-Qaeda. The issue with Somalia is a really important one. It is not in our interest to deny the average person the ability to send money home to their families. Um, to the contrary, uh, if when you think about the larger radicalization issues, that can, that, that can be a contributor. On the flip side, we do have to be very, very careful about preventing different types of financial instruments from being vulnerable to abuse, certainly large-scale abuse. And that was the case with the remittances going back to Somalia. And what then happened was a dynamic within the private sector where it simply was not worth the risk to Western banks to take on that type of business. How do we, it comes down to the questions we've already had at several before, privacy in Europe, for example, how do we balance the risk? We have two competing sets of interests here. They're both legitimate. We have to stop terror financing going to Somalia. It was happening. It's a real issue. How do we also enable these remittances to go? What, how, how can you change the risk calculus? How do you overlay more risk analysis into this? This is something that the terror finance community is looking into very, very closely. The bigger issue is this humanitarian one. It's not that the terror finance activity is then being driven underground simply because in a place like Somalia, it's, there's only so much farther underground it can go. They can't use banks. If they can't use remittances, it's that they can't send the money, but neither can 
good people who are just trying to send money home. Uh, my concern is from uh, a no less legitimate humanitarian one, uh, and we need to be able to balance these concerns. Now our efforts trying doing that right now. Right. Thank you. Um, turn to Libya for a minute. Uh, President Obama, in an interview last week, uh, identified uh, probably the biggest regret he said of his presidency was not to adequately plan for the aftermath in Libya. Um, we are seeing, obviously, uh, links to al-Shabaab um, and uh, to uh, Boko Haram. To what extent is our focus on trying to uh, lessen the appeal uh, with those groups simply overwhelmed by what's going on in Libya now? Um, there are 6,000 fighters, we believe now. And where, where should our focus in Africa be? Is the focus in sub-Saharan Africa and with these countries misplaced as long as we let uh, Libya fester as it is? What, where, where should our focus be? Anybody want to take that? Mr. Wood, go ahead. Um, so, I know we have to focus everywhere, but, uh, but I mean, is it, uh, is it futile to look at these, these movements in sub-Saharan Africa without addressing Libya? Uh, I think it's very important to start with Libya. Um, so the efforts against Boko Haram undertaken by the Niger Nigerian government um, have, been, have shown some, some positive uh, results so far. I think that the, the area that, that uh, has the, the greatest potential to metastasize, though, is probably, is probably Libya, moving in, in, in a western direction from there. Um, I, I tend to think that, that there is simply few, there's simply fewer people who are, are um, um, uh, um, directing their attention toward Libya right now. Um, than the, there are in the cases of other other areas such as such as Nigeria, and that our attention would be well spent there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for holding this hearing. It's a very important testimony. I appreciate it. Um, I, I have two thoughts as I listen to the testimony: one poetic and one prosaic. So, uh, Yeats wrote a poem at the end of World War One, looking at post-war Europe, Second Coming, and he basically described the situation as the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Um, I think the worst are full of passionate intensity uh, in, a, in a very sharp degree, and I think the question is whether the best have conviction. And the, uh, there's an unsteadiness and an uncertainty about strategy, about the message we communicate, not just the United States but other nations too, not just the executive but the legislative as well. Um, Recently, on the prosaic side, a senior American military leader said to me, we have O plans, but no strategy. And you each talked about strate strategic points in the chair, asked questions about that. Operation plans, we, you know, we got a plan on the shelf if, if uh, Putin goes into Latvia or if Kim Jong-un does something about South Korea. But in terms of the strategy that puts it together, it's, it's uh, lacking right now. And I've been, you know, pretty hard on this body, a body which I'm part of, so it's a self-criticism as well that we're two months into a war and we haven't really had meaningful debate or vote about it. I, I just don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I think the debate that you have about an authorization for is how you just pepper an administration with questions about strategy and make them refine it and get better and better and better. And then you do the debate in front of the public so the public understands what the stakes are. But you know we're two years in with no real prospect of that happening. But I've also been pretty hard on the administration because 
they, they weren't quick to send us an authorization for war against ISIL. They haven't really insisted on it once they sent it to us in February of 2015. Uh, in addition, if you look more broadly about our military posture vis-a-vis non-state actors like ISIL, the president gave a speech now three years ago at the National Defense University saying that the 2001 authorization needed to be revised. Mr. Chair, we were part of a meeting that the White House convened, I think, two years ago that was a very productive bipartisan meeting where we talked, and we thought there was going to be some follow-up from the White House about, well, what do we do with the sort of organic law of the country with respect to our strategy against non-state actors? And there's been zero follow-up from the White House, at least that I've really participated in, maybe others have had those conversations. And so I do think we are in a moment where we're dangerously free from any strategy, where some of the O plans are good and some of the things that we're doing are good, but I agree with you, and this is a Catholic theological point, you know, sins of omission can be as bad as sins of commission. And I think while the things we are doing are often pretty precise in the way they're calibrated, I think there are a lot of things we're not doing that are really a problem. The chair raised the question about is it fair to talk about strategy in this era when compared with the earlier era dealing with the Soviet Union, Truman Doctrine containment? And I think that is a fair question, and I, I like the Ned and the first reader analogy. I, I think by the time we got into the 60s or 70s, the strategy was pretty clear, but maybe when it was being formed, it seemed as murky or challenging as it seems to us right now. Truman had to go to a Congress that he had just lost both houses in March of 1947 to ask for help to shore up the governments of Greece and Turkey from Soviet-backed um, communist internal parties. And uh, he had just gotten drubbed in a congressional election, but he had to go and lay out a strategy with the risk that Congress would say, we're not paying attention to you. And a bipartisan Congress heard him. They didn't vote on the Truman Doctrine, but then a whole series of things happened. The vote on aid to Greece and Turkey. Months later, the Marshall commencement speech at Harvard where he laid out the guts of the Marshall Plan to rebuild European economies, even the economies of our enemies. There was a strategy that, that had its strengths and weaknesses, but it was articulated by a president. It engendered bipartisan support. It was comprehensive, not just military, but a whole range of things like Fulbright scholarships, Peace Corps. There were a whole series of non-military aspects that developed over time, and it, it lasted for quite a while. So I, I would encourage, and I know the chair has done this before. We've had hearings to try to flesh out what a strategy might look like. I do think the world is much more complicated in the array of powers than it was. But I also think that it probably looked pretty hard at the time in the 40s. And it, so it's, it's looking hard now, but I, I, um, I hope the administration will follow up on its pledge of May 2013 to engage us in this dialogue about how we look at the 9-11 authorization. Question you about counter, countering violent extremism here in this country. So we've already had a Virginian convicted, high school kid, convicted in federal court for trying to encourage people and facilitate people going to be foreign fighters in Syria. We've had other people arrested at the Richmond airport on their way, you know, circuitously to Syria. What are some strategies that we ought to use as we look to the success of CVE activities around the world or even anti-gang strategies here in this country? What are some strategies we should be focusing on to be effective on CVE activities here at home? I can start and, and pass it on to my colleagues here. In, uh, you know, this, this strategy, for, and, and Dr. Levitt mentioned this, that for the first time we now have a dedicated office. This is bureaucratic uh, 
answer in part, but an important one, which is a, an, an office in the Department of Homeland Security, co-led by DHS and the Department of Justice with staffed by the FBI and the National Counterterrorism Center, for the first time an interagency group that's formalized, devoted to this question. So that's, a, that's an important step, certainly not, you know, the, a, a, uh, not the fulfillment of the program. But in terms of strategies, it is to, as, as others have said, it is to empower others to uh, understand the, the message that ISIS and other uh, groups put out, that Al-Qaeda puts out, to understand that message and to give those groups the capacity to withstand that message. So it's, uh, it's training, it's building trust within Muslim American communities, as, as I talked about, so that they feel comfortable coming forward to law enforcement. The reality is that, that Muslim American communities, families, uh, are, and, and neighborhoods are on the front lines of this effort, and they are gonna be the first individuals to, to see the signs of, of a friend or a neighbor or a loved one becoming radicalized, and they're gonna be in the first, first, posi first position to be able to take steps to stop it. So that's, to me, that's a critical part of the strategy. Please. I really appreciate the question. Thank you very much. Um, the task force is the right step, but let me be clear. The task force is nascent. Uh, the decision to announce the formation of the task force was apparently rushed, I understand, so that it could have possibly made it into the State of the Union, but then didn't make it into the State of the Union, but is now officially created, but not yet funded, and also doesn't yet have all the legal authorities. Uh, Secretary of uh, Homeland Security uh, spoke at a conference last week and said there's $10 million for those programs. It might as well be zero. $10 million is nothing. There, I'm told more money is coming. That should have come with the announcement to the program. And it's suggesting that the intention isn't sincere, and I believe it is. But we shouldn't be politicizing this. I think, personally, the most important thing this task force can do is find partners in communities and work with them on things that are happening earlier in the process. Let's move the needle earlier in the process. By default, we have put CVE within law enforcement because we don't have a like the Brits do, a Department of Communities and Local Government. But this is not a law enforcement issue until mm -hmm. a law has been broken. And so I started my career at FBI. It shouldn't necessarily be FBI. It should be the local social workers or others who are doing interventions. We have to do off-ramping. It shouldn't be the case. There will be cases where some teenager is going to end up doing something, is going to have to be convicted and put in jail. There should be many, many more cases where we as government, we as local communities work together, and we gotta work out those legal authorities, figure out how to do it, and partner with one another to walk that person off the ledge and off-ramp them. And I will just say, maybe the most important thing we'll say today is to underscore what Mr. Olson just said, and that is that Muslim American communities play a huge role in this. They're being targeted by people who are radicalizing their children. Some of the discourse in our country right now is repulsive. And I know Muslim Americans who tell me that their children are having conversations in school. Who of us will have to be deported? That's a, that's a painful and un-American situation that we should not tolerate and should not be part of our discourse. Not because it undermines our ability to counter violent extremism, which it does. And not because it undermines our ability to do counterterrorism, which it does, but because it's repulsive. Could I ask Mr. Wood if he would sure. just offer some thoughts? Thank mm -hmm. you, Mr. Chair. I would echo the thoughts already been um, been aired. I would I would just say that that um, yes, the the communities are by far the most likely to notice that their um, that their members are being radicalized. The families are, are most likely to, to realize this. the The question I think that that many of them face though is by turning in uh, their their kids, by turning in their friends, uh, are they 
ruining their lives or are they saving their lives? And we want them to have no doubt about that. Um, that might mean um, having some, uh, exercising some discretion in prosecution as well. If I could, uh, my second interjection, I, I don't think I've used up my full seven minutes yet, but you know what, we had a hearing last week um, just to talk about the, the debt issues that we have as a nation. I think that maybe this side of the aisle thought it was going to be, it was set up to criticize the administration, but not a word of that came out. It was really just to talk about debt and our inability to have the flexibility to solve our nation's problems. And as you talk about the Truman Doctrine and containment, what went with that was significant investments, if you will, to, to deal with that issue through decade after decade after decade, culminating in the 80s. But, you know, the lack of process that we have here, the lack of prioritization, the fact that demographic changes are taking here, place here, and we're not dealing with those issues, the fact that our budget process is a total joke, a joke, um, puts us in a situation where we do deal, uh, Director Olson laid out responding to symptoms, I'm sorry, responding to symptoms and, you know, there's no discussion here really of dealing with the root cause in a real way and what that would even mean. And I just want to say again that the, our debt issue, the, us knowing where our resource levels are, the fact that we, we know we're going to have deficits for, from now on based on just the way we're set up as a nation, really inhibits our ability to have a longer-term strategy, if you will, to deal with this issue um, in an appropriate way. That's not a Republican statement, not a Democratic statement. It's just an observation of, unfortunately, our inabilities to prioritize and deal with it, things in an appropriate way. With that, Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Director Olson, you know, after the, uh, the attacks in Brussels, the State Department came out claiming that uh, ISIS is, a, it proved that ISIS was under pressure because of the arrest the weekend a couple of days before. Uh, ISIS also has been carrying out other sophisticated explosive attacks, so in the Sinai, threatened U.S. forces, continue to expand in Africa and a number of other locations, groups in Libya, Tunisia, Algeria. So, you know, ISIS may have been somewhat under pressure in that one area of the, the, the cell, if you will, in, in Brussels, but at operational and strategic levels, they don't appear to be under pressure in, in my assessment. Do you, do you think it's a correct assessment that ISIS is under pressure and, uh, you know, one, how do you how do you view that? And then you had in your written testimony mentioned the uh, if you had the kind of the power to draw up your own strategy or, or add things on to the current strategy, uh, could you maybe voice a little bit more about that? Sure. Thank you very much for the for the question. I, look, I I think uh, there was no doubt that ISIS is under some degree of pressure in its safe haven uh, in terms of the military pressure brought to bear. You know, thousands of of ISIS uh, fighters have been killed by the coalition airstrikes. The the you know some of the territory they gained in Syria and Iraq have been uh, have been taken back. But um, uh, you know, the ISIS is. I think we what we're seeing now is uh, the sort of as I said the sort of fruits of the foreign fighter problem in, in, in terms of what's happening in Europe. So there, is a, there isn't real pressure uh, in terms of uh, bringing uh, 
the extremist networks uh, to, bear, uh, to, to ground, basically understanding where they are, prosecuting them, uh, st disrupting their activities. That pressure does not exist to the extent it needs to. Um, I'm not familiar exactly with what the State Department meant, but you know, there, is, there has been a sense, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that that's, they, I think they are opportunistic when they carry out attacks, um, and I do think that there are, is an effort, perhaps, because of the pressure in their safe haven to maintain their relevance by uh, provoking attacks uh, and carrying out attacks in places like what we saw in Brussels in Paris. But overall, you know, be because of their, their reach because, and because of their, the level of their propaganda, um, it is uh, the case that we are going to continue to see certain amount of directed attacks and then inspired attacks uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, Dr. Levitt, do you have anything you wanted to add on to that in terms of you know, under, under pressure? Thank you for the question. I, I agree. I think the Islamic State is under more pressure than it had been, again, especially since the rules of engagement were changed and we've seen a real difference since December. Uh, with 40% of territory uh, you know, pushed back, this ability to uh, be able, not the inability to say that they're remaining and expanding, uh, senior leadership strikes hitting them uh, with frequency. Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't be able to do horrific things within the region and abroad. A, B, I don't accept the argument that the reason we're seeing attacks is because they're under pressure. It is true that they appear to have moved the plot in Brussels forward faster and in Brussels as opposed to Paris because the, the, the cell itself in a tactical sense was under pressure. I think it's clear from the Islamic State, again, their foreign terrorist fighter program for foreign directed plots, we now know goes back to late 2013 before Adnani's call for carrying out attacks in the West in response to Western airstrikes. Part of their whole worldview is about a fight against the West. They don't just want to create their state and leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. They want a fight in Dabiq. They want to provoke attacks and provoke a fight. And I think that was part of, if we can't provoke you here, if you won't come and fight us here, we're going to do it there too. As we have success against them at home, yes, they will have still more reason to want to carry out attacks to show that they are not down for the count, that they are relevant, that they're on the front pages, and to provoke fear and literally terrorize. That doesn't mean that's the only or even the primary reason for those attacks. Yeah. Back to uh, Director Olson, we were talking about terrorism wanting to take the attack elsewhere. With the result of this uh, whole Iranian uh, deal and the hundred billion dollars of money going there. We've been, there's been a lot of concern expressed on this committee about that some of that money used for terrorism. And the topics for today's discussion includes transnational terrorism. Uh, even Secretary Kerry said, yes, some of that money will likely be used for terrorism. Could you give us your assessment of that? Absolutely. I mean, I, there's no doubt that Iran is the you know, in terms of state sponsorship of terrorism is the greatest state sponsor, you know, in the world. And so there's concern as we see their aggression and in places like Yemen that there will be potentially an uptick uh, in terms of terrorist attacks that are linked back to uh, the Iranian regime. So it's, you know, I think as speaking as a, you know, former government official, this was a concern that really any, any time that we looked at the broader terrorism landscape, uh, the concern about Iranian-sponsored terrorist groups and, and, and acts of terror uh, was always part of the discussion. The uh, earlier one of you testified to the fact that for every one person killed by ISIS, it's a nine by, uh, by Assad. And I wanted to just ask about the Iranian influence now in arming the militias, providing the Revolutionary Guard forces to assist in 
fighting against ISIS, but at the same time, in Iran-backed Shia militia threatened to attack U.S. troops who were deployed in, in northern Iraq related to uh, our fight against ISIS. Should we in the United States be concerned about the, the role, the influence the Iranian regime is, is having in operations specifically against ISIS, and is it just being used to help Assad even further? And whoever wants to take it. Look, I'll just say, you know, we talk about foreign terrorist fighters, we all hear Sunni foreign terrorist fighters, but there are about as many Shia foreign terrorist fighters uh, in this fight, uh, and they're being organized and directed by Iran. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that Iran is de facto or de jure, it is creating the equivalent of a Shia foreign legion, which will be available to it for all kinds of nefarious activities uh, moving forward. At uh, the Washington Institute, we published a study on the Shia foreign fighters just in Syria, leave the Iraq side uh, out of it. Uh, and there is a huge issue there. Those Shia fighters are not blowing things up in Brussels right now. And so I understand, obviously, the focus on the Sunni side. But we're going to have to walk and chew gum because there are, there's a spectrum of radical militant activity. Uh, and part of it is on the Shia side of the equation. Uh, and that's something we're going to be dealing with uh, over the horizon. We need to keep an eye on that, too. Thank you. Anything else you want to add on that? Yes, just um, the local narrative of ISIL is to say that Sunnis, you cannot go back. You cannot go back to Iraq. Iraq has gone over to the Shia, it's gone over to Iran. And insofar as the, the, the free reign of Iranian militias in Iraq uh, demonstrates that, it's a serious problem when we try to think about how to put the pieces back together again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before going to Senator Markey, I wonder, uh, Director Olson, since you've done what you've done for our country in a great way, how would you compare the differences between the Shia and the Sunni uh, relative to the most recent response about their, their engagement in the world and some of the terrorist activities? How, how would you, from the standpoint of our nation's national interest, uh, talk about the differences there, if you would. Sure, it's a, it's a really an important question, Chairman. I, I, and I, I, you know, I go back to something that, that Dr. Levitt said, and you know, we, we are obviously in this hearing, much of our focus is on the, the Sunni extremism problem, and uh, when we think of ISIS, obviously that's, that's rightly the focus. Um, I think, uh, and, and in terms of recent terrorist attacks, which also rightly draw our attention, those are Sunni extremism. Uh, attacks, whether it's Brussels or or Paris or San Bernardino, um, the in terms of our U.S. Of, of our national interest, particularly in the Middle East, the Shia problem perhaps doesn't get as much attention as it should, um, and that is because I think I think put it well, Matt, that you know we are seeing perhaps the sort of ability of a state, Iran, to develop a cadre of of Shia extremists that can carry out an you know, Iranian aggression in the region. And we are certainly seeing that in Syria, of course, but we're also seeing it uh, in Yemen. Uh, so it's a, it's, it perhaps doesn't grab the headlines in the way that attacks, for, obviously, that occur in Western Europe do, but it's one that is of uh, important interest to the United States. And which would be, if you, which would be more concerned to us relative to our own national interest over time? I guess I would still rank Sunni extremism as more of, an, of a concern because of the, the threats, the urgency to the threats that whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS pose to the safety of Americans, whether here at home or you know, in Europe or around the world. So I would still think, and I think this is probably reflected in my old agency, NCTC, 
the, the bulk of the effort analytically and in terms of collection is focused on, on the Sunni extremism problem. Dr. Labadon, you want to say something? I, I completely agree. I would just send, I give a lot of thought to this. And the way I put it is we have an urgent, immediate threat from Sunni extremism. I think overall, the more strategic threat may be on the Shia side. And we have to be able to address them both, even if the strategic one is not right now, this second, as urgent in the sense of who's responsible for Brussels, who's responsible for Paris. That's an urgent, immediate threat. There's a strategic threat over this horizon, and we'd best pay attention to it now, or we will be caught off guard tomorrow. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Wood, I'd like to ask you this question. Uh, it's about the role that the Sunnis are going to play in governing their own cities after there has been a clearing. So what happened about a couple of months ago was the Speaker of Iraq's Parliament, Salim al-Jabouri, came in to visit us, and he said that Shia militia are still in Tikrit and that they hinder stabilization. And last week he was quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying about Tikrit that Displaced families have returned, but now there is a feeling that another occupation has begun. The Shia militias and armed groups are still there imposing their will. This is not what the Sunnis want. Okay, so you look at Ramadi, you look at Mosul, right? So trying to build a coalition to liberate Mosul when the Sunnis back into Crete are emailing their cousins saying, this is not working. The Shia is still all around us here. You know, they're not letting this go. And to some extent, the same thing is true over uh, in, you know, other parts uh, of uh, Iraq as well. So if you look at Ramadi, you look at Tikrit, and now you're trying to build a coalition up around Mosul to fight um, ISIS. What's the confidence that a Sunni should have that it's worth dying for? Uh, that that uh, they're willing to put their necks out on the line if at the end of the day uh, the Shia still wind up, you know, um, blocking them from, in fact, having the kind of control that they've been promised in terms of their regional governments. I would say this is the, the single largest factor that will prevent uh, this situation from being resolved anytime soon. And it is a reflection, too, of ISIL's awareness of of this long in advance of their taking territory. Um, they have, they observed what happened in the 2000s. They observed the success that, that, uh, that uh, the United States and others had in uh, finding Sunni allies, and they made sure that those Sunni allies uh, are not alive. Um, they assassinated huge numbers of possible partners uh, in advance of taking their territory in, in Mosul and other areas, in other areas of the Sunni-dominated portions of Iraq. And that means that there is a long road ahead of finding, um, first of all, Sunnis, Sunni Arabs in Iraq who, who could stand in as, as leaders of a, of a post-ISIS situation. Um, in the absence of them, then there would have to be a credible government coming out of Baghdad that does not exist. So uh, how, how, how much does that complicate taking back Mosul if Sunnis don't have the confidence that the Kurds or the Shia militia 
or the government itself, the Iraqi government, is actually going to ultimately restore Sunni control over that city. Is there, is there not a great deal of additional complexity, uh, difficulty that gets added to that whole effort that, that uh, can be cured by having Tikrit and Ramadi under Sunni control without interference from the Shia? And what should be done by our government and others to say to the Iraqi government, get out of Tikrit, get out of Ramadi, you know, let the Sunnis control it, let the good people run their own institutions, and then we'll have some confidence that the people in Mosul will rise up and fight. How important will that be? Uh, vital, and realistically, I think it postpones uh, the liberation of, of Mosul by, uh, certainly by months, I would say probably by years. Um, the government in Baghdad, of course, is aware of these problems, um, but is uh, tied in enough with uh, Iran in particular to be uh, unsure that it really wants to solve them. And I, I think that, that um, whatever pressure we can provide to, 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 suggest, uh, to suggest more activity on that front than, than we should. Unfortunately, I, I don't see any quick way to do that. I don't see any pressure that we can provide that, that uh, in with, with the diminished influence that we already have in Iraq, um, unfortunately, I don't see a way through it. Do the other two of you agree with Mr. Wood? So I think that this is uh, the, the single largest impediment to stability in Iraq. I think the single largest impediment to dealing with the ISIL problem remains the Assad regime. It's a separate issue. Uh, in the, unless you can convince... In, a, in Iraq, in Iraq Assad, the Assad issue in, in Syria, Syria is the single biggest obstacle to in resolving the, in Syria. the ISIS issue in Iraq? Is that what you said? No, it's not what I said. Oh, so just focus on Iraq then, right. please. So here we go. Okay. In Iraq, okay. the biggest issue is the fact that the uh, Sunni minority has no faith in the central government, Shia-led central government. Should they have faith? the government is going to have to take steps to enable them to have faith, which it has not yet. And the single biggest problem there is that after Ayatollah Sistani called for Shia to uh, volunteer for military service, instead what happened is people volunteered for militia service, and those militias now appear to be here to stay. The Hajj al-Shabi are meeting with the Ministry of Defense. They're asking for a headquarters to be built. To the extent that they are formalized, that is going to make the Sunnis feel much more fear. So do you agree with Mr. Wood that that could push back by Without months doubt. or, in fact, years, our ability to liberate Mosul? Do you agree with that conclusion? I think it will push back uh, by years the ability to have stability in Iraq. It's possible you could still go forward and try and liberate Mosul. Liberating Mosul isn't the issue here. What comes after the liberation of Mosul? If if we don't do things now to make sure well, that no, the Sunnis what, what, have buy-in. What, what Mr. Wood is saying is that it does complicate taking back Mosul because you won't have the full uh, support of the Sunnis in that region who are saying it's worth dying for to do it because the post-government structure is very dubious in terms of the respect which will be given to the indigenous Sunni population. You do agree with that. I agree that it complicates it. I but don't you, don't, you don't think it actually reduces then the likelihood that there will be a pushback in the amount of time it will take to, to liberate Mosul? You think that's an independent question, what happens afterwards? You don't think it actually affects the time frame it takes to actually liberate Mosul? 
I, I don't think you're hearing what I'm saying. So I said yes. I think it does affect the ability to take Mosul. I okay. think that ultimately Mosul could be militarily uh, taken, but it won't be held long unless you have the buy-in from the Sunnis. The wrong way to do it is to have the Shia militias do it. And the last statements from the Iraqi government, the militias are, we, the Shia militias, intend to be at the forefront. That would be disastrous. Okay, that would be a disaster. And I don't have any more time. Do you agree that would be a disaster? You, you can just answer yes or no, Mr. Olson. Would that be a disaster? No, I don't know if it would be a disaster, but obviously this, all this complicates the effort. Okay, good. Incredibly. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, and th thank you all very much for, for being here today. It's a very, very important hearing. I, I um, uh, want to ask about the caliphate a, a little more specifically. I mean, some of the some of the things that have been laid out and disagree me, with me if I'm wrong, but eight to ten million people under the control somewhere in that range is the numbers that I've seen. Uh, Brett McGurk's recent numbers are on on fighters is 19,000 to 25,000 fighters. But they, they have lost, as you've indicated in your testimony, 40% in Iraq and 10% and in Syria. Uh, but they're still in control. And, and what I'm really wondering is, is, you know, with the way they raise the revenue, you have the taxes, you have the oil, you have the kidnapping and the ransom and all of that. Um, why, why do people, with the, with the numbers of fighters and then the large group of people that are under control, why do people under the caliphate accept it? Why do they pay taxes? Uh, why do we not hear anything about anybody rebelling? Are there rebellions going on within these 8 to 10 million people? I mean, are, is there any effort to kind of push back after they see brutality and, and things in their communities? and, and where are we on, on that front with what exists there in terms of, of um, how the people feel about the governance that has been imposed on them by, by the, this uh, uh, caliphate? Um, there is certainly evidence that people who live under, the, under, under ISIL um, are not unified in their support for it. Um, that is, there, there's evidence of people fleeing it. Um, of course, many more fleeing Bashar al-Assad in Syria, but still evidence of people fleeing the caliphate. There's no uh, ability to really be a loyal opposition within it. So of course, we're not going to see um, overt um, uh, activism against them. Um, the reason, though, that, that people are willing to accept the caliphate um, beyond just what they're, they're forced to accept is that the alternatives that they have had in recent years and that they see offered to them for the future are not much better. Um, they're looking at, at the caliphate as a source of stability, source of governance, uh, and um, I think probably last as a source of, of, of validation um, in the religious sense that, that the caliphate itself pre uh, prefers to, to headline its, its governance with. So if, if they're looking as an alternative to, to, to government by, by ISIL, uh, to say the government of Bashar al-Assad, um, or chaos, then they, they might prefer, um, for purely pragmatic reasons, to, to, to have the amputations and crucifixions and so forth. Yeah, Mr. Levitt, please. Uh, I agree. First of all, many Sunnis don't see an alternative. Second, many Sunnis see this as not ideal, but some level of protection from the sectarian fighting from the Shia side 
or from the Assad regime. Third, um, a, a extreme ultra-violence and barbarism goes a long way to intimidate a population. Um, and the average person wants to get by and have their family get by another day. And finally, uh, there's a cost to uh, having an uprising that doesn't get outside help and then is, if not immediately, over time, suppressed. Um, and they don't see the prospects of outside help in that regard. Uh, and so there's a tremendous cost to these people who are effectively, uh, most of them hostages under Islamic State control. And you hear anecdotally cases of people who have left who said, look, when, when they first came in, I figured, okay, they're you know, fundamentalist extremists, but they're fellow Sunnis and there'll be law and order. It might not be my law, but as long as I live by, I won't smoke, I'll get by. And then they leave because they realize it was so much worse than they thought it would be. But ultraviolence then will go a long way to subdue a population. Yeah, Mr. Olson. Yeah, I, mean, I generally agree with the, 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 my colleagues here. I, it, we, I think we are seeing an erosion uh, in terms of the uh, what's happening and how individuals who have been subjugated are viewing what it's like to live under uh, under ISIS. Um, and I think over time, you know, I think the the hope is that that becomes uh, that that. That, that sense strengthens. Um, and overall, that as, as ISIS loses territory, its claim to have established a, a caliphate will be eroded and it, the group will lose really its central claim. Yeah. You, you have um, talked about countries in the region when in, in fighting this um, um, terrorist threat, being participants, collaborating with them and, and uh, and working with them and building regional coalitions. Which are the countries that you don't think are helping uh, what's, what we, our goals and our objectives over there? Who's not really stepping up to the plate? In your, are, are we really just divided along Shia and Sunni lines in terms of the countries and looking at them? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the countries that, you know, there is obviously the issue that you just mentioned, the, the, the Sunni-Shia divide, but the, you know, there are, there are countries in the region are helping to varying degrees. I think the one a country that stands out that's helping more now than it has in the past is Turkey, and that's, no. been a, that's made a big difference, and that's a, they're, they're a vital part of the coalition effort. But the, the, the flip side of my question is who's not? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to answer it slightly differently. Okay. I don't think the problem is who is and who isn't, because I really do think is varying degrees. I think the bigger problem is this. You can have a hard time as you look around the region, even though this is happening in their backyard, finding a country for whom the Islamic State is the number one problem. Maybe it's the Kurds. Maybe it's Assad. Maybe it's the Shia, or maybe it's the Sunnis. The Islamic State is on almost all of their lists, but for us, it's pretty much number one. And for almost none of them is it number one. And that leads them to doing things differently, prioritizing things differently. And that's where the tension is, not a good list, bad list. No. Did, Mr. Wood, do you have anything to add on that? I, I would echo that last point in particular. Um, it, it, the, the problem is simply that it is not in the primary interests of of most of the players in the region to focus their efforts on, on ISIL. And there are major costs that are associated with doing that. Um, the, the only way to, to actually get their cooperation, I think, would be to, to make sure that it was in their interests. And that's not something that, that, that uh, we're capable of doing because the, the calculation is due to regional dynamics 
that are longstanding. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your responses. We have a similar problem, if you'll remember, with Pakistan. Um, our interest and their interest are very, very different as it relates to Afghanistan. It's very hard to redirect that and uh, keep them away from the duplicity that they've been carrying out. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Wood, in your testimony, you talked about the fact that the ISIS message played into the existential political and religious desires of uh, many inhabitants of the regions in which ISIS grows. And it's, it's very, very difficult for us um, to talk about the role that religion plays um, and the perversion of religion plays in this debate. It's outside of our lane. We look really bad when we do it. And in the context of this presidential campaign, none of us want to feed into the really awful and discriminatory narrative that comes out of some candidates' mouths. But I want to read you a quote from Farah Pandith, who was uh, our country's first U.S. Special Representative to Muslim communities. And, and I'll ask Mr. Wood, you'd react to it, but others as well. Um, she said, uh, that she traveled to 80 countries between 2009 and 2014. She said, each place that I visited, the Wahhabi influence was an insidious presence, changing the local sense of identity, displacing historic, culturally vibrant forms of Islamic practice, and pulling along individuals who were either paid to follow their rules or became their own custodians of the Wahhabi worldview. Funding all of this was Saudi money which paid for things like textbooks, mosques, TV stations, and the training of imams. I don't know how we do this, because I think we are very coarse in our interventions, but shouldn't at least it be a greater portion of our dialogue, the role that Wahhabi influence plays in the seeds of extremism, uh, how people are primed, essentially, to hear the messages that are coming from ISIS, in part because uh, the moderates are increasingly losing the fight to some of the more hardline elements that are purveying a certain form of intolerant Islam. I'm not asking you for solutions here, but as we try to try to diagnose the, 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 the problem and we try to diagnose why there is this susceptibility to ISIS messaging, shouldn't we admit that the tension within the religion is a big part of this? Yes, and, and I appreciate the caution that you, 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 um, that you allude to that we have to have when we're dealing with this kind of issue. Um, but certain, certainly, if you uh, look at the theological beliefs of ISIL fighters, uh, of ISIL ideologues, and you compare them to um, mainstream Wahhabi beliefs, they are different in important ways. Uh, they are similar in many ways as well. The intolerance is there, the brutality is there. Uh, Often, um, I, I've, I've done some reporting on public opinion in Saudi Arabia in, the, in recent months. Um, the level of support for um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as caliph uh, among Sunnis uh, is in double-digit percentages, according to what I've, what I've seen. Now, the level of support for, if not him as caliph, another caliph who, who uh, perhaps would um, differ not, not by much, uh, is even higher than that. So I, I, I do think that understanding the, 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 um, the religious background uh, of Wahhabism, as, as my colleague Farah Pandit has mentioned, 
Yes, is, is important. The other important thing to see, too, is the ways in which that uh, Wahhabi strain has been mobilized to oppose ISIS. Um, the state religion of Saudi Arabia is a kind of Wahhabism that is quietist, that is opposed to, um, in theory, is, is opposed to uh, violent action uh, to oppose, to oppose um, uh, Muslim leaders in particular. So I, I think we need to look at it with as um, as fine-grained a, 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 a um, an analytical toolkit as we as we possibly can, seeing the ways in which that kind of intolerant Islam uh, has certainly fed into and made fertile the ground for for ISIL's the theology, and also seeing the ways it can be can be mobilized, probably not by us but by others, uh, to oppose it. Mr. Levitt, you want to add anything? Uh, she put cards on the table. Farah's a good friend. We're PhD students together. She's wonderful. I'm glad you quoted her. I would just say there's a difference maybe between how this plays out in the region in Muslim-majority countries and how it does in the West. It's important in both contexts. Uh, I think uh, Graham presented some really important ideas on how it's facilitating itself in Muslim-majority areas. Um, when I was in Belgium and I asked authorities about this, not well, let me be clear, I didn't raise it at all. Almost every Belgian authority, authority I spoke to raised the issue of the uh, predominance of Salafi ideology in Belgium with me, and so I'd ask about it, and what they kept saying is some version of, here's one person's quote, Salafism is mainstream in Belgium. Not all Salafists are terrorists, but all terrorists were targeted for recruitment by Salafists in these neighborhood extremist networks. And what I walked away from, if you look at most of these people who are involved in crime and are still drinking and using drugs after they've sort of become Salafists or they've become Islamic State, is that they're being radicalized to the idea of the Islamic State far more than any idea of Islam. To them, not knowing much about Islam, they are Salafist or Salafi Jihadi, really, ideas that they are presented with, they are present, this is Islam. And so one thing we need to do is not counter the narrative, but allow mainstream Muslim organizations to present what they are. And the other thing is, especially in the West, we should not back down or be bashful about standing up for the Western ideal of tolerance. Um, Mr. Olson, let me ask you one additional question. We're talking about how you get Muslim nations to engage in the fight against extremism when many of them on the Sunni side are much more interested in fighting Iran and, and vice versa. Um, we're talking about yet another weapon sale to Saudi Arabia to resupply their munitions that they've used inside the civil war in Yemen, which is essentially a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. Wouldn't, wouldn't a pretty easy step be for the United States to say that if you want to, a resupply for the weaponry in which you're going to use in a civil war between uh, two nation states that you, as a condition, um, continue to be a partner in the fight against extremism. I mean, these GCC countries, in part, have walked away from the bombing campaign against ISIL in order to fight in Yemen, and we're about to resupply them without, it appears, any explicit conditions that they rejoin the fight. So I, I can't speak directly to the, you know, the particular weapon sale that, that you mentioned, Senator. I, do, I would concur with uh, Dr. Levitt's point about the concern that Saudi Arabia, other Gulf countries, this is, ISIS is one issue, but not a priority issue, and we've certainly seen that in the context of the conflict with the Houthis in Yemen. Um, at the same time, my own experience has been that the Saudis have been very close and reliable partners in the counterterrorism fight over the years. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Just to follow up, and before we close out, uh, 
if y'all could state the relationship from your perspective of Wahhabism and where we are today with ISIS. Uh, I would say it's, it's a complicated but still direct relationship. If, if you were to look at the, the texts that ISIS uses um, for the indoctrination of its recruits, many of them are uh, indistinguishable. Um, but for very slight changes, slight but important changes from Wahhabi texts that you would see in Saudi Arabia. Um, some of them are literally textbooks that come from Saudi Arabia. And, and what have the role, all of you if you would, but the role, so the text is similar. What about the clerics, uh, especially outside of Saudi Arabia itself? What has been their role um, from your perspective? I think what's most important, both, both with the texts and the individuals uh, and their, their preaching, is the normalization of a kind of view of Islam that is uh, extremely intolerant, that is extremely anti-Shia, uh, and that um, is extremely attractive as well to anyone who might be looking for a, a, um, a, a kind of violent outlet for their religious beliefs. That's something that, that's been happening. Um, Salafism or Wahhabism has been around for, of course, centuries, yeah. but for the, for, it's been, um, for a matter of decades, there has been a kind of normalization of, of mm -hmm. this intolerant view of, of the religion. And I think that comes to fruition in, in just one of several violent ways in the form of ISIS. Dr. Levin. Um, I agree that the, the main connective tissue is the uh, uh, making uh, intolerance uh, something acceptable and normative. There is ideological connective tissue. Uh, the Islamic State selectively has textual basis. It uses this one and not that one. But it's not the case by any stretch of the imagination that every Wahhabi or even every Salafi jihadi, certainly not every Salafi, is an Islamic State supporter, but those Islamic State supporters or Islamic State members or operatives will subscribe to elements, at least, of that ideology, and they'll often take it a step further. So there is that connective tissue. If, you, if, it, if one word, it's the intolerance and the hatred of others. You subscribe to that, it's a slippery slope and can take you to even more dangerous places. Dr. Olson. You know, I just agree with my, my colleagues again. I, I do think Part of, I think, your point, Senator, you know, we have trouble talking about this, and, and part of the concern, which is a real concern, I, I, I brought this with me from my time in government, is that we don't want to paint with a broad brush when we talk about the religious uh, uh, foundations for what we see in ISIS messaging. 1.5 billion Muslims, uh, you know, obviously the vast, vast majority uh, have nothing to do with this ideology or in particular with ISIS or, or terrorism. At the same time, at, at, at NCTC, we spent time uh, in terms of the analysts understanding that message, understanding both how to counter it, understanding how to give amplification and voice to the, message, the messages from both the government, but more importantly from those outside the government that can help to defeat that message. So um, it's a complicated issue. I, I think the, the point about intolerance is a very good one. I guess the other thing I would say is that when you look at, just in terms of the United States, uh, homegrown violent extremists, the ones that the FBI is tracking, the 250 or so that the FBI director has talked about either going or trying to go to uh, Syria. It's very hard to 
uh, draw any kind of general points about those individuals. This is the U.S. radicalized population. They, some are, many are converts, many are born Muslim, they come from different walks of life. I think it's much more difficult to draw some of those same conclusions about the U.S. population as you can when you look perhaps at populations inside Syria and Iraq who have, have joined ISIS, so I, just a, a word of caution there. Yeah, so, but, but to, get what it, to get back to where Senator Murphy was going, at least partially with his questioning, so then you have on top of that, you have the, the issues of poverty and, and certainly, um, you know, politics in the region which exclude and, and don't take into account the needs of Sunni population. So you have this sort of interlaced, and it creates an environment, does it not, for ISIS to flourish? Is, would that be fair? When you have clerics who are out there uh, speaking of intolerance, uh, am I missing something here? Um, I, I think that's, I think, as yeah. far as that goes, I think that's accurate. Okay. So, so, you know, obviously us being involved in trying to counter that would make it even worse in all likelihood. Uh, meaning Western forces trying to counter that, not, not military forces, but trying to counter that probably makes it even worse. So, so if we know that, um, what is the best way for us to counter what the Wahhabists are doing around the world and helping create this environment uh, that is ISIS rich? How, how do we counter that? In a nutshell, I'll just say you don't seed them the playing field. Um, if there's a community that needs support, the support that should be forthcoming should not only be from the extremists. It doesn't have to be from the United States. Who are we partnering with? There, the vast majority of the Muslim world, certainly the Muslim American population, is extremely moderate. And who are we partnering with? So if you across the spectrum, you will have religious leaders that are part of the problem you will have many more, I believe, who are part of the solution. But even in the West, we haven't yet grasped this. In, in Brussels, I was told when I was there, there are 114 imams, mostly brought in from Middle East and North Africa. Of those 114, only eight speak any of the three local languages. So for those third or fourth generation Muslims who primarily don't speak Arabic, they can't communicate with these imams, even if they are not extreme, if they are moderate, they can't be used as part of the solution because there's literally a language barrier. So we could work with Western governments, governments in the region, to try and bridge even something as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? I, I would just add that the, the, um, the interpretation that Wahhabism or Salafism or Salafi Jihadism um, puts forth is one that's been around for a long time. It's a religious, it's a view of a religion, um, and it's 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 far beyond my capacity or that of a of a government. I think to to resolve a religious schism or uh, or 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 contending interpretation that 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 has existed and not been resolved through hundreds of years of of uh, of dispute. So. All of this, which is simply to say that we need to, to moderate our expectations for what we can do, even with the kinds of support that we, we can and, and should give to uh, more moderate interpretations. Senator Cardin. Mr. Chairman, I just really wanted to, to compliment this panel in this hearing. I found it extremely helpful. You know, obviously, it's extremely frustrating when we're going after uh, an, an entity 
that doesn't have a one location and one uh, particular game plan where it pops up in different parts of the world uh, at different times and has territorial ambitions. And I just thought that you all really centered in on uh, strategies or what needs to be part of an ongoing strategy, which includes U.S. leadership at the forefront and the ability to get coalition partners to be engaged. I thought your point about the cutting off safe havens at an early stage so that they don't become uh, bigger problems, as we've seen, obviously, in what's happened in Syria, providing a place in which ISIL could thrive. Uh, that's an important part of the equation now in Libya. Uh, I also thought that the territorial issues are important and to continue to be able not only to retake but to, but to maintain the, the ter territories away from ISIL, which requires good governance, which is perhaps the most challenging of all of our objectives, how we can get governance that not only has the confidence and respect of all the people of the country, particularly Syria, but also Iraq, uh, but that it can function to protect all the population, including the Sunni tribal areas. That's not easy, but it's a, it, it, you, you've made that point uh, very, very clear. Cutting off their support, obviously, whether it's uh, the financial supports through oil or whether it's the propaganda machines that they use, all that is, is critically important. And lastly, something that America is not good at, and that's patience, because this is going to take a long time. So I thank you very much. It was very helpful to me. Thank you. I, I agree. I think uh, whenever we set these hearings up, you never know whether they're going to uh, shed some light that it are, is helpful or not. In this case, it, uh, all three of you have been outstanding. We thank you for your contributions here and in helping us to understand more fully what we're dealing with and to help others who are on looking. And I hope that uh, uh, you will answer questions that will be coming uh, in a fairly timely fashion. I know each of you are busy. We'd like to keep the record open through the close of business Thursday, but if you could get back on those fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. Uh, we thank you for the role you play in helping all of us understand more fully the challenges we have. And again, for being here today and preparing to do so. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. But you've been extraordinary, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. The meeting's adjourned.